The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hare Krishna, you are listening to the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world, the Late Morning Program with Nam Ras. This is your host, Nam Ras, and I'm here with a recurring guest, His Holiness, BP Padmanabh Maharaj. Maharaj, thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much for the invitation again. Yes. So, Maharaj... This is a this is going to be an interesting one. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, the last podcast. So the last podcast was about is bhakti inherent in the jiva, and it seems like this is a very. I did not know personally that this was a very contentious issue amongst the Gaudiya Vaishnava community. So let's talk a little bit about the repercussions that you face, kind of, in talking about this uh, topic. Okay. Yeah, I did not know either that it was such a contentious topic myself. So I'm kind of also <laughs> awakening to that fact, to that reality, which somehow further confirms what we were speaking in one month ago about the need for for dialogue and the need for for sitting together and at, at, at least start to hear each other and try to know each other and understand each other. Because the fact that there is so much friction, if you will, in some topics or even sometimes beyond the topic in itself with some situation may be challenging our present uh, conviction that shows that there is some healthy need for for dialogue so regarding the the repercussion of the uh of the podcast of course there were different types of uh, repercussions from one extreme to the other i mean from one someone in i remember someone wrote me from bengal asked me that if I could become his guru <laughs> to the other extreme, that I was a traitor to the whole Sampradaya and the Deviant and an Aparati. So you have all the nuanced shades in between as well. Yeah. But <laughs> in, in general terms, of course, many devotees uh, really appreciated the content and were nourished by it. But of course, to be fair, at the same time, there were some other members of the audience who disagreed with, with my point, some of them, of course, the podcast was not only about the topic, but there were some, some focus in that direction. Uh, and there was some threat, as you may know, and many of you may know, uh, after those days and weeks, trying to communicate with each other. Unfortunately, at least in my consideration, in some cases, I felt the situation got a little bit heated and uh, generally falling into very, like, how to say, like common places, like like accusing the other party, you know, the anti-party, and this is the deviant, this is the sahaja, this is the aparadi. Basically, sometimes because one is saying something different from what that person was accustomed to hear from their guru. And I understand the situation, I understand how challenging that may be, but also I think that it's important not to very easily like jump into some extreme emotionality and, and, and developing this mechanism of protection and seeing enemies around or something like that and concluding even I, I, I unfortunately have this type of exchanges some people telling me only the people from my particular lineage is the only bona fide one and whoever says something different and so on you know? so I think these points confirm in a, while, a little bit what we were speaking in the first communication and we referred podcast the three types of conversations sambad jalpa vitanda how sambad means 
we want to be defeated by truth. We don't want to defeat any other. There's no second party, anti-party enemies, but we are sincerely trying to grasp the ultimate conclusions. So one, I was thinking after all this coming and going after the podcast, I felt one of these symptoms that show we are not yet have reached the maturity of proper Vaishnav conversation is if I feel the necessity to attack the other person, for example, to establish my point, what sometimes is called the argument ad hominem, which means instead of attacking, quote unquote, of dealing with the point, I'm attacking the person presenting the point. So that means still I feel there is an enemy on the other side, someone that I have to defeat. Like one of our chairs will say, weak faith requires an enemy. So sometimes the perception of an enemy implies I don't have enough faith in myself or in my own points to make my own points positively, but I can only make my quote unquote points by criticizing the the so-called enemy who has another view. I mean, so-called enemy, only because of having another view. But again, in, in a real debate, in a real Vaishnav conversation, nobody is to be defeated. Basically, both parties will be winning and true, truth will prevail. And both will win because of having accepted truth, of having learned the respective lessons. So, and again, yeah, to, to engage in real debate, I think that qualification for that is to, how to say, to be willing to hear something we may disagree with, without the need of having to attack the quote-unquote anti-party. We should be willing to hear uh, and deal with that in a gentle way, in a sober way, like the Goswamis themselves did in their books. They were addressing the opposing arguments, Abhita Vedanta and other sampradayas and lineages, without the need of demonizing anyone, without getting extremely emotional. Uh, And again, instead of doing that, quoting Shastra and presenting their points in a really sober way. You know, I remember when you were having this uh, podcast with Lalita Madhav and Bhaktivin Thakur and how he quoted this interesting point that Bhaktivin Thakur at one point mentioned the Bhagavatam was authored by someone with a pen name Vyasa and then in the second right. edition of the Krishna Samhita, he My kind God. of updated that and, and connected that, that opinion to, to the scholastics of the time, not so much himself. So Lalita Madhav was presenting this notion that he perceived the form of development development of thought in the presentation of, of the Thakur. Yeah. And, and that should be the norm for all of us if we want to be part of the of, of such a dynamic school and lineage like the Bhakti Not Paribar. For me, it's like some form of scandal if sometimes we as members of the Bhakti Not Paribar may just limit ourselves to represent such a personality like Bhakti Not Thakur. By, by simply limiting ourselves to re- regurgitating a dogma, uh, sometimes for the sake of institutional chastity, uh, but instead we should employ our rational faculties in the context of Shastriya Shraddha or of faith developed on the basis of scripture with the type of dynamism that someone like Bhakti Thakur uh, exhibited. Because if not, Vaishnav will be seen in the world and in our own community just as a bunch of whatever, emotionalist, sentimentalist, uh, as they did in the time of Bhaktinot Thakur. Vaishnavs in the time of Bhaktinot Thakur were seen as such a bunch of, a bunch of sentimentalists. Bhaktinot Thakur trying, trying to contribute with depth, thought, dynamism. So if we, in the name of Bhaktinot Thakur, just let our emotions carry on here and there, 
the world still may see us in that way. We are not able to dialogue amongst ourselves of Gaudias with each other as a bunch of fanatics shouting at each other in social media, <laughs> in social media saying my guru is better than yours, basically. Right. So right. for me, that creates some form of, of shame, basically. Um, so, yeah, someone was making a point that Gaudiya Vaishnavism is not good for fundamentalists because there's 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 so much gray area when it when someone's a fundamentalist it's i'm not saying that some devotees are fundamentalists i'm just saying that in general fundamentalism is like there's only one way and then that's it but there's so much gray like you were talking about that last time about the sh different hundreds of shades of gray that there are and i think that i think that has to do a lot with what we're talking about there's a lot of gray area that we don't um, and then we have to be okay with that, I think. Yeah, but again, that requires certain adhikar or certain uh, eligibility. Not anyone can swim in the gray waters, if you will. And it's okay. We are not to demonize those who can yeah. only think in black and white terms. Yeah. But nowadays, it's, it's a whole social complex dynamics because in ancient times, let's say, debates were conducted in certain circles where certain people leading the debate with certain adhikar and everything went on in a relatively gentle, kind way, sober way. But nowadays, social media is just one click and everyone has a keyboard in front of them and feels the right to, 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 to share their opinion without maybe thinking too deeply about how, how much adhikar do I have to, to, to share my opinion with the world in an in yeah. extreme way, as I may be doing. You no, know? so. So yeah, Vaishnavism, Gaudiya Vedanta is a very high, refined and dynamic tradition. And, and all that can be dangerous, basically, if we do not have the willingness to, to transcend fundamentalism, to transcend black and white thinking and enter into, into the areas of gray. And, and that requires, again, proper, proper guidance. And we may not be uh, Madhyam Bhaktas or progressive Vaishnavs yet with the, in the full sense of the term, but at least we should be guiding our actions and thoughts by someone who is on that with that standing that will warranty that we will be protected because if that's not there there's some danger for apparat there's some danger for fundamentalism applied to other Vaishnavs who, who just may be thinking differently from me and i may just be feeling they are enemies they are against me they are insulting the whole parivar maybe that's not the case maybe they are looking for truth maybe even more sincerely than me that can happen yeah so we, we should be open for that, because if not, yeah, everything ends up being really fundamentally things. Some people was telling me also these days, like, okay, you have to go through your guru. You are jumping through your guru and saying what the Goswamis are saying. But I was saying to them, but what if we are speaking in a public debate about this topic to a wide audience that not necessarily are members from the Bhakti Not Parivar? You cannot just impose on them what Bhakti Thakur say, which is so unique about him. We have mm. to be able to dialogue in a more universal realm, basically, with full consensus about certain books and some Shastri consensus. As we quoted, I remember I quoted Srila Prabhupada from Chaitanya Charitamrita, which says, we should accept Guru, Shastra, and Sadhu, but the actual center is Shastra. And if the Guru or the Sadhu do not speak according to Shastra, they are not Guru nor Sadhu. So Shastra is the center for all. And he concludes saying, unfortunately, and the present moment, people do not refer to the Shastras. And we know who Guru is. Of course, I understand that Shastra is known through the Guru at the same time. There is this interdependence. But at the same time, how do I know who is Guru? 
by Shastra. Shastra is describing who is Guru. And Shastra describes the Guru is someone who knows Shastra, who speaks on Shastra. It says, Shrotriyam, Shabdhanishnatam, Gyani, all these famous verses in Shastra, in the Gita, Bhagavatam, Mundaku, Panishad. The Guru speaks according to Shastra. So if the Guru is more important than Shastra in every sense of the term, in which sense Prabhupada said here, Shastra is about Guru. Hmm? So it's important also to, again, a, 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 a beginner devotee, of course, will need that everything will be explained by the Guru, of course, but a more progressive Vaishnav has the capacity to go to Shastra and to have a criteria and, and, and individual sensibilities uh, and, and basically Sometimes, it, because I hadn't say also these days, no, someone's tell me, <laughs> well, what you are telling regarding bhaktis being non-inherent in the jiva and so on, is not bona fide because you do not learn that under the feet of the pure devotee. So basically, they, right, were telling me, yeah. basically they were telling me my guru is not a pure devotee. <laughs> so, so the conclusion is you have to surrender to pure devotee. And of course, the ultimate idea is most probably my guru is that pure devotee, so you should surrender here. So... Of course, uh, one has to learn Shastra from Guru, but if Shastra in a very clear overt way is saying something, let's say Bhakti is not inherent or whatever other topic, it's, I don't need a Guru to explain me how actually the Shastra is saying exactly the opposite. No, I mean, if, if Shastra is saying something very clearly, the Guru will develop, expand on the intricacies of that obvious truth, the Mukya Briti, the direct meaning. So we need Guru for further implications of the direct meaning of Shastra. But if the Shastra clearly saying, I don't know, the soul is eternal, it's not that the, I need a guru to explain me how the soul is not eternal, because it's not necessary, the Shastra being clear on that. So the, the guru will expand on that in detail. And again, all, all the things that sometimes- Can you can you explain that again? I didn't I didn't get that point. Yeah, for example, there is something called Mukya Briti and Gona Briti. Mukya Briti means overt, explicit, clear statements in Shastra. About right. something, Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead. Whatever, soul is eternal. Right. So, the shastra is clear about that. The full consensus. I can read shastra and get that idea, and I need guru to explain me all the further implications of that clear idea. It's not that the idea is not clear enough, and the guru will explain me in such a way that he will conclude the opposite of what shastra says. You follow. Mm. It's not that Guru will explain me. Actually, Krishna is not the supreme personality of God. Actually, the soul is not eternal. There's no need for that because the Shastra is being clear. Oh, I see. Yeah. But we can expand on that idea, of course. So similarly mm. to this, in connection to the topic of Bhaktins being non-inherent, Shastra is really being clear and there's some consensus there. But again, some contemporary Acharyas at times have said something else. And of course, it's important to include that. I'm not rejecting that. I'm not saying that's deviant. <laughs> Some may have claim. I'm just concerned about how to incorporate, how to include that, basically, how to include that. And of course, some devotees may have told me in, in the social media, but Maras, are you a Nutan Bhagavata? Do you have Prem in your eyes, in your heart? Are you a Sanskrit scholar to determine what is what? <laughs> the point is, if I, if I will have Prem, I will never say I have Prem, basically. If I'm a Mahabhagavata, I will never say I'm a Mahabhagavata. I'm not. Of course. <laughs> and if I'm a real Sanskrit scholar, a humble one, I will never say I'm a real Sanskrit scholar. So this type of questioning of the person who is presenting the argument is some form of dead end, which really do not go to the end of the whole thing, basically. No? Right. And, uh, something I would like to mention, if we have some brief minutes in this connection also, oh, please, yeah. 
that's something that I already mentioned in the previous lecture. So with the permission of all of you, I may repeat myself briefly, but ideally how to address this type of sambad or healthy conversation in the quest of, of Siddhanta is to establish first Praman before Prameya, before which is the scriptural epistemological source we will use before the topic in itself that wants to be established. So for us as Gaudias, as a generalist Gaudias, not limiting ourselves to one particular lineage, the Srimad Bhagavatam and the books of the Goswamis are our foundational canon, basically. Even the books of the Goswamis are foundational canon about the Bhagavatam, are our Mula Grantas, because why? In one sense, the Bhagavatam is our main book, but we are reading the Bhagavatam through the lens of the Goswamis. We are reading the Bhagavatam through the tikas, the commentaries of the Goswamis. And other Sampradayas will read the Bhagavatam and will find something different. And so these commentaries of the Goswamis, along with the Goswamis on books, are our Bhagavata. That, that constitutes what we call Gaudiya Vedanta. So it's important to, to refer in that foundational direction, canonical direction, when we want to set some Siddhantic point in our Sampradaya. And that means to take shelter in Shastra to nourish our faith. Some, some also some complaint has been there these days. I'm mostly addressing the complaints. I won't just tell in detail the nice things people have told me, but that was there also. But some people have told me that I am disturbing the faith of others by, by bringing these points. Right. And you, you along with me, Namrasa, by inviting me to your show. <laughs> yeah, no, I want to just say that. I mean, people think that you are, you're telling me like, oh, let's do this and let's do that. No, it's been my idea because I appreciate Maharaj's, um, the way he articulates ideas and philosophy. And I think it makes for really good podcasting content. So that's why I invited him. I'm, I mean, anyways, yeah, please continue. I just want to clear, clarify <laughs> that. No, no, no problem. So basically, my intention in being here, of course, you are inviting me very gently, and I accept the invitation, hopefully, in the spirit of service to the Gaudiya community. It's not yeah. my intention to disturb anyone's faith, what to speak, destroy anyone's faith in their own guru, in their own acharya, in their own mission. But when I mentioned that I have found in my own journey a particular acharya or some particular acharya saying different things, I'm just sharing my own trip, if you will, my own journey, my own experience, how I found the things. And, and, and I couldn't just like close my eyes like the three monkeys, close my ears and my mouth, but I had to address that and harmonize that somehow or other, trying to invoke the dynamic spirit of our Parivar, trying to nourish my faith through that exercise. I know maybe this is not for everyone and not everyone should be listening to this particular podcast maybe for sure. But this is for some, for sure. And I have received lots of feedback of many devotees who were nourished in their faith like this. And in my personal case, I feel this exercise has really worked very nice. My faith in Bhakti Notak or Srila Prabhupada and our Parivar is alive and well. I feel it, it has been strengthened by this type of exercise. And again, I have nothing against them. Bhakti Notakur, Bhakti Not Parivar, Srila Prabhupada. All of them saved my life. I mean, I was a totally conditioned soul, a wild beast in material existence, doing all the nonsense you can imagine. So I owe my life to them. I mean, the, the worst thing I could do against my own interests will try will be try to diminish their position in my life or in the life of others. So can I just reflect, can I just reflect back to you what you're saying? Yes, uh, you, you're saying that this exercise of reconciling different things that have been spoken by the Acharyas, 
this was is your personal journey and you're sharing that personal journey and that, that you know you don't have any uh i you don't have any motivation to disturb anyone's faith or to um undermine any of our acharyas Prabhupada, Bhaktivinoda Saraswati Prabhupada, and Bhaktivinoda Thakur. That's what you're saying. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was that will be the most contradictory and unbecoming thing I could yeah. do for my own interest. For my own interest, it doesn't make sense for for, for that you would want to do that even. Yeah, basically. And, and on the contrary, I felt that by engaging in this type of exercise, trying to pray, trying to be honest, trying to maintain a steady sadhana in the context of dealing in these waters, I felt that my appreciation for they, for they for their gift had really increased in my heart. And I feel that some others also see their, this appreciation being increased in their hearts as well. So, and I know it's complex because for some other people that not, may not be the case. <laughs> and that's when we enter this yeah. situation where not everything is the same thing for everyone. For someone, something is medicine, something else, the same thing will be poison, if you will, for another, for, for another person. So I know that some of these topics may be challenging and I acknowledge that I have inherited somehow from my own Guru Maharaj and Vishnu Patrila Tripurari Maharaj and some other Param Guru Devsa Siddhar Maharaj, uh, some challenging views that try to take us in a hopefully compassionate way from the comfort zone and trying to invite people, starting with myself, thinking from a different angle of view, hopefully all this in the context of Shastra. But my point is, if by quoting Shastra, if by sharing with some people what Shastra says, my faith is disturbed, uh, and if, if the presentation is trying to be made with logic and common sense and good intention, hopefully, so, and nonetheless, my faith is disturbed, then I may wonder, I may question my own self, my own faith, because if someone quotes Shastra with good intention, common sense, and logic, and that disturbs my faith, maybe I'm, res I'm responsible of my own disturbance, basically, mm. because Rupa Goswami says our faith ideally should be Shastriya, Shastriya Shraddha means our faith should be nourished by invoking Shastra. So if by invoking Shastra, my faith is not nourished but disturbed, maybe that's showing that my faith is not Shastra, but Lokika. Lokika means like more sentimental. And I'm not demonizing someone who may be in that situation, but yeah. I'm trying to objectively uh, acknowledge that possibility. Mm -hmm. Because by quoting Shastra, the idea is we are trying to nourish faith. Mm -hmm because faith is to be Shastric, ideally. We have to have faith in what revelation is telling us. But if instead of feeling ourselves nourished, we feel attacked, let's say, that may speak more about where is our faith at at the moment, and not so much maybe my, my intention in speaking. And I don't want to play the victim here. I mean, I'm willing to recognize whatever mistake I may have committed, and I beg my burden to whoever devotee has been disturbed by any of my words. Again, there is place for being a kanista, there is place for being a, a, a beginner and to have this lokika shrad, a more emotional faith, but also there is place for that to grow. And these type of dialogues <laughs> are there for this, are, are there for those who, who are in need of growing their faith, basically in, in the context of shrada. So I, I'm sure that some of these topics are not for kanistas or for certain level of tanista, but at, at the same time I acknowledge with social media, this it's difficult to determine who is on the other side of the screen. Yeah. So hopefully someone who may be on the Kanishta platform may not feel attacked by hearing me, or if he or she hears, feels attacked, hopefully he may go to his guide, who may be or her guide, who may be Alisa Madhyam, 
And the Madhyam may say, no, no, Padmanabha Swami is not such a demon. He's not that bad guy, that bad guy basically. <laughs> but he's speaking something that is not the moment to speak now. Like the example we gave of the store, the mother telling to the baby, you, the store put you in the chimney, and the boy hears another version at school from a, another boy, and he returns to her mother. This boy is a demon. He told me something different. The mother said, no, 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 no. We'll speak later about that. It's not the moment now. <laughs> right. So uh, that's a, the problem with this type of conversation. You know, some of them are specifically more directed to the necessity of certain types of practitioners. Uh, and that happened in all times. You know, the students were in the Gurukul, student with the, with the guru, in the, with Shastra, with one guru or a few personal exchange. But nowadays you click a link and you are in a talk like this and maybe hearing topics that may be above one's capacity. So that's why one day we were joking that, okay, next episode in order to avoid controversy, we'll put only for Madhyams or something. <laughs> you know, something Maharaj that doesn't sit well with me is that we, sometimes I hear the word Kanishta used as like a pejorative. Yeah, I don't use it like that, as I mentioned. For me, to be a Kanishta is not a crime. All of us have to be Kanishta unless we have been Kanishtas in previous lifetimes, but to be Kanishta is basically to be like a baby, baby Vaishnava. No, so you have some babies, your children. So it's such a charming age. It's, it's a very beautiful moment, but it's not the all in all. I mean, they need so much care. They do not, they cannot do too much of their own, basically. You cannot leave a one-year-old baby doing the having their own life, basically. <laughs> in yeah. 10 minutes, he will be crawling in the midst of the Fifth Avenue in New York or something. <laughs> so they need like some eye on them. So similarly, but it's beautiful. That age is beautiful. But the point is, if the baby now is a teenager and it's 17 years old and goes back to her mother and say, Ma, can you breastfeed, breastfeed me again? Give me breast milk. No, no, no. The mother will say, that was beautiful, <laughs> but it won't be beautiful now. You need to grow now. You know, you need to become right. more. So it's beautiful to be a, 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 in kindergarten. It's, it's a very foundational stage, very important one, crucial one, but that's not the all in all. So again, I, I'm not about demonizing Kanishtas. Actually, I'm about appreciating that station taking care of that particular, like uh, very fragile section of practice and, and, and how to properly nourish their faith. And as we spoke in the last meeting, sometimes canistas need to take some distance from that certain type of dialogues and may disturb their faith, not because the intention is disturbing or the topic is deviated, but just because it's not the moment yet. D Going along with that same example that you gave of the mother telling the child, oh, you came from the stork and, and, and down the chimney. What devotees I heard have issues with is that, okay, you might be telling the child, the other boy might be telling the, ch the other boy, hey, this, that's not how you came. This is how, how you came. Why is there a reason to uh, tell the boy that and, and, and make that boy maybe lose faith or question the, the mother when, when maybe later, later on in life, he may, the, the mother may, or, or he might come to his conclusion himself. Basically what I'm saying is that I think what, what the people had, I heard on the thread and all this stuff had, had an issue with was like this preaching tactic, uh, argument. That 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 uh, you know, Prabhupada and Bhaktivinoda Thakur use said certain things because of a preaching tactic. So, what would you say to that? Well, I say, I say in the, like you've addressed this, but I, I'd like to hear it again. 
Yeah, yeah. To begin with, of course, that was not the main point of my presentation. My main point, and, and of course, the main point of my forthcoming book is about establishing the Siddhantam Bhakti in the Jiva. And, and I, of course, as you know, I go in the direction Bhakti is not inherent. But uh, of course, at the same time, the other section is, well, how do I understand some differing opinions mentioned by some of the more contemporary charis that seem to contradict that premise, at least at times, not always. Not always, that's the most interesting thing. And of course, I tried to conjecture as much as I could in the best possible way. I do not claim this is the ultimate truth and the last, last deeper, deeper siddhanta and conclusion in that particular direction. It was a preaching strategy. That was my conjecture and how I tried to solve that. And, and I tried to harmonize and integrate all the different statements that I found. Because if not, if I over-absolutize what's more contemporary Acharya said, that will relativize what the Goswami said in the original texts. No? So that happens as well. So the, important, the point mm. is how to harmonize the two. Mm. So I know that the term preaching strategy doesn't sit well. I may consider using some other expression in the future. <laughs> Because I know that there is very deep ingrained, like even subconscious uh, reactions in us that, okay, they are manipulating us, they are lying to us, they are calculating something, and they are cheating us, and, and we don't want to be cheated. We came to Krishna consciousness exactly for the opposite reason. So it may sound like a little bit shocking in that connection. But again, as, as I have tried to explain, there is a place for that in a, in a protective and nourishing place. So going to the example of the stork and the chimney you may say well the boy doesn't need anyone to tell that anything and he will realize for himself who knows maybe of course it's an analogy no for yeah, it maybe easier to realize about that than to realize <laughs> something about Siddhanta by yourself so and with this i'm not saying you have to to in, in, intrude in, in in the life of every single person and impose whatever conclusions you have reached for the benefit of everyone Again, that's a complex dynamic thing here. I'm not, I'm not saying everyone needs to, for example, hear my talk I'm having with you now or our first episode or, or even read my book. Maybe for many of them, it's not necessary and I'm not blaming them or, or forcing them. You have to read my book and agree with me or something. Yeah. Some of the words may say, I, it's not my concern at this point, Maras, about this. We say, okay, no problem. But the problem is, of course, I'm speaking here with you and some of those devotees are connecting by their own volition to the, <laughs> by their own will to the interview. I may hear things that I'm not trying to impose of them, but I'm just here happening, speaking about them. And again, it's not too much under my control who is on the other side, in particular in these COVID times with social media and so on and so on. So I agree that we are, we do not have to go in the world speaking to every single person about every single aspect of Siddhanta and levels of truth. But also I agree that there is so much need uh, for dialogue and conversation and so much need for proper conclusions in, in, in the case of many devotees and so much need for, for learning how to speak about that as we have seen in the last weeks. There is still a lot of need for developing the capacity of speaking about that. In one point it goes beyond whether Bhakti is inherent or not, or whether the jiva falls or not, it, it goes beyond that in one point, and it, goes, it has to do with how much do am I willing to learn? How much am I willing to deal with diversity of opinion? How much am I willing to change? Because spiritual life at the end of the day is about change. 
So sometimes this is the, the underlying principle that takes the form of this particular topic or the other. But at the end of the day, it has a lot to do with not so much who knows more, who defeats each other, but how much we are willing to continue learning. So, yeah, I mean, I think a huge part of this whole thing, a learning experience for me has been how to harmonize and how to listen to other devotees that may have different ideas than than, than ourselves and, and being okay with that. Like it, it becomes an issue when, 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 when our sadachar, when our behavior is, is, uh, becomes like you know, offensive and, and defensive towards other Vaishnavas because they might have a different idea. Like, do we all have to agree on things? Like we don't, like we really don't, I don't think. And, and the consensus, we don't have to have a consensus, right? Mm hmm of course, in certain things we we need. I mean, we need to have consensus. Again, as I mentioned, Krishna is the supreme personality of God. And as Gaudi, as certain things we, we will agree. Certain other things we are trying to agree, at least to begin to speak. <laughs> and, certain <laughs> other, and certain other things we must disagree in order to allow for diversity. Now, and, and even if those things, like these things that we are speaking now, whether Bhakti is current or not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not thinking I will convince the whole Gaudiya community about my point. I'm, I'm not thinking that. But I'm willing to, to speak and to learn and to, and to dialogue with people, as, as you mentioned. Even if I have my own take, stance, opinion on the topic, and I'm convinced about that, it doesn't mean we cannot speak. It doesn't mean right. uh, I have to become emotional if you disagree with me. And that's a very important exercise to expose yourself to some diverse opinion and look at yourself what happened in your blood if you will <laughs> when someone is saying something different from you and it's convinced about that do you feel the person is threatening you is an enemy how which subjective opinion you are projecting onto the environment because a lot of things that happen at that moment has to do with our own situation not so much with someone else outside so it, so yes, I agree. We have lots to learn as a as, as community, as community, and, and and allowing diversity to nourish us. Even if it takes the form of disagreement, there is a place for that. But again, in a gentle way, not in an offensive way, not yeah. like promoting enemies and bands and camps and anti parties and deviants. And of, I mean, it's easy to go to those sections and to point victim consciousness and this is the the, the demon and let's attack and so on. So it's a higher challenge to really develop the capacity of disagreeing. As they say, we will agree that we disagree in a, in a proper way. Yeah. I, I, one more point before we get into the actual topic, because we haven't yeah. even hit that yet. But <laughs> um, uh, there's, like, there's also the point of an organ if you're part of a, an organization, mm -hmm. uh, a spiritual organization, there's like an accepted stance on something. And that perpetuates as time goes on, for example, like in deity worship, like if, if, a, if deity worship is done a certain way, then that's passed on from, from person to person to person as time goes on. Same with philosophical explanations on certain things. There may be a certain stance that the society holds that's, that's an accepted stance. And then that perpetuates from person to person in that society. It may be correct. It may not be correct, but, uh, what is your viewpoint on that? That an accepted stance needs is going to be perpetuated, but it may not be correct even sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Both things can happen, as you mentioned. So I think it's a healthy 
exercise to remain willing, uh, open to re-examine, if you will, recalculate, recalibrate uh, yeah. the background of why we do what we are doing. Because if not, we will engage in what Drupa Goswami calls Niyama Graha, which mm. means to just follow certain things without knowing why you are following. The other one gave me the same stance and there was some copy-paste, generational copy-paste of how to do something. And it may be correct, but if I do not get the, the essence of that and the, the gist of that, it may be not correct. And so there are so many, of course, we are speaking in a general way here, not addressing any specific topic, but the point, let's say you take some philosophical position on some topic in a particular spiritual society and for decades that is passed on officially and that seems to work <laughs> for whatever reason, uh, even though it may be mistaken, and eventually, after some decades or generations, whatever, some other texts come and show there was not the proper understanding. Whatever the case, I'm not speaking about anything in particular. Yeah. So the point is, the important thing here is the willingness to re-examine one's understanding, to not be so sure about, I'm doing everything perfectly. You know, that's sometimes the, the danger that, that may like be some form of spiritual bypassing. You know, I'm... I'm in proper lineage, the most bona fide parampara. I'm receiving everything in the most pure way. So sometimes all these type of notions take me to the idea of there's nothing to be revisited. Everything is perfectly in place and we just have to continue passing on the model. And I'm not saying that everything in that model is wrong <laughs> at all. Probably everything mostly is right, but sometimes generation after generation in time, society, people, communication, things may get distorted or may need some update, some relative situations. There are, of course, you have the absolute philosophical principles, but also you have the relative uh, circumstantial adjustments. So sometimes one thing may be, may be confused with the other and so on. So it's the role of every member of the parampara to contribute by thinking deeply about that. Not, I mean, we can be pirates in, in, in just pirating something without understanding, or we can be pirates as Sukadev Goswami, like, biting the fruit and making it sweeter. So that's what's expected from us as members of the Parampara, making that contribution. Right. Okay, so Maharaj, let's get into the topic today. Yes. The, the, <laughs> the fall mm -hmm. of the Jiva. So for those of you who don't know, this is a, um, a philosophical point regarding how did we end up here in the material world? How did the Jiva end up here in the material world? So myself being a member of ISKCON, the ISKCON official uh, stance, I believe there was a there was a paper written about this and the GBC I think voted in 1995, I believe, about the stance. And the stance is that we fell from the spiritual world to the uh, the material world here. And Prabhupada said that we fell a, num a number of times in conversations or letters and but also in the books he he said that uh, the conclusion is that we, that we can that the jiva can never fall from uh vaikunta so um let's talk a little bit about that your your understanding of that um point and then also how to uh kind of harmonize the apparent contradictions in these statements mm -hmm. so again we here have another example of apparent contradiction. We are not here yeah. promoting Prabhupada is contradicted, Prabhupada doesn't know the Siddhanta, Prabhupada is confusing us, nobody's saying that. Yeah. But we are trying to honestly acknowledge 
there are different types of statements. So we have to do something with that. As we mentioned, we kind of just cherry pick whatever is more comfortable for us and just mm -hmm. forget the other thing. So in this sense, many of the points from my, our first episode also apply to the criteria to deal with today's topic. But of course, I won't repeat myself in that in detail. But I imagine most of you have watched that. But if not, you can use check that. And many criteria are present there and how to deal with certain apparent contradictions and controversies. So regarding the fall of the Jiba issue, yeah, there is some, if you will, mixed opinion. And we have seen that in the thread. You published the flyer of this meeting some days back. And <laughs> the, the podcast already began without my participation some days back with hundreds of messages in different, in different directions. So that yeah. showed that there was some divided notion in this connection. Yes. Because Srila Prabhupada seemed to have said both things, and not only letters, because sometimes they say, yes, okay, in letters, Prabhupada say we fell from Vaikuntha, but in his books, he say we never fell from Vaikuntha. And while that's mostly the case in, in quantity of, of statements, also he has said in his books are certain things that lend themselves to be interpreted as we fell. So I have one quote here, if you, with your permission, I may share that with you. Please, this yeah. is one excerpt from Sila Prabhupada's purport to Fourth Canto, 28th chapter, verse 53 from the Srimad Bhagavatam. So he's saying, when the living entities desire to enjoy themselves, they develop a consciousness of duality and come to hate the service of the Lord. In this way, the living entities fall into the material world. When the living entity wants to become Krishna himself or imitate Krishna, he falls down into the material world. By misusing his independence, the living entity falls down from the service of the Lord and takes a position in this material world as an enjoyer. So wow. that seems, I mean, again, he's not maybe directly saying you fell from Vaikuntha, <laughs> but it lends itself to be interpreted in that way. And as you may know, many devotees have taken this particular purpose as well as some others. And these verses from the Bhagavatam in this section as, okay, here we have the Shastric proof that we fell from Vaikuntha, from Golok, from the spiritual world. Now, something important to consider in this section of the Bhagavatam is that this section is an allegorical section. It's not speaking about literally about falling from Vaikuntha. You can prove that by many ways. One, that any other Acharya, Vishwanachakabhartakul Goswami, spoke, commented on these verses, like indicating a possible falling from Vaikuntha or Golok. And at the end of this chapter, the very last verse, verse 65 of this 28th chapter of fourth canto, after narrating this allegorical story to the king Prachinabharhi, Narad Muni, who is the one speaking here, he concludes in the last verse of this chapter, mentioning the purpose of all this story, allegorical one, was not to indicate that we fell from Niti Lila of Bhagavan, but basically to share some analogies in the context of self-realization. So that also puts the whole thing in another context, because as Wait, we mentioned- Who says that? Naran Muni, last verse of this same chapter in the Bible. Oh, okay. okay. So mentioning all this that I mentioned is not by to point, we fell from Vaikuntha, but he's speaking about, basically as I mentioned, certain analogies, allegorical notions in the context of self-realization. Right. So that's on one side, not the, the so-called section of the Bhagavatam, and apart from letters that we know the Prabhupada mentioned to some of his disciples even more explicitly, we, you fell from Vaikuntha, you were with Krishna and so on. 
And of course, we have the other type of statements when Srila Prabhupada very overtly clearly says, in this case, we don't fall from Vaikuntha. For example, the main uh, part that I will go is the only place in the Bhagavatam where clearly this topic is addressed, which is in the seventh canto and the first chapter, 35 birds, and the section where Jai and Vijay are quote unquote falling from Vaikuntha. Right. And at that point, when the narration is taking place, Judisir Maharaj hears of oh, Jai and Vijay fell from Vaikuntha, and he kind of asks Narad Muni, who is from whom he's hearing, how can someone fall from Vaikuntha? He kind of asked in a rhetorical question, like how how can someone possibly fall from Vaikuntha? And of course, the reply will be nobody falls from Vaikuntha. And Srila Prabhupada makes that point in his purpose to this verse. Let me share that with you. This is the only place in the Bhagavatam when this question is raised. So Prabhupada says, from authoritative sources, it can be discerned that associates of Lord Vishnu who descend from Vaikuntha do not actually fall. Therefore, it is to be understood that when Jai and Vijay descended to this material world, they came because there was something to be done for the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Otherwise, it is a fact that no one falls from Vaikuntha. So that's pretty categorical. And there are many other purports. I've done some brief research in the Bhagavatam where Prabhupada says the same thing. In 3.15.48 of the Bhagavatam, he says, in the vote in the transcendental abode of the Lord never falls, Similarly, 3.16.26 of the Bhagavatam, he says the conclusion is that no one falls from the spiritual world or by Kuntha planet for it is the eternal abode. In the Bhagavatam 3.16.29, he says the devotee once accepted by the Lord can never fall down. Bhagavad Gita, it says from having once gone to that world, they don't that, return here again. That place from which having attained it, one never returns. So basically... Prabhupada made this clear over and over again, and this is the Siddhanta. Now, the Siddhanta for Gaudiya Sampradaya is that no one falls from Vaikuntha, no one falls from Golok, no one falls from the spiritual world. Uh, what to speak in our Gaudiya Sampradaya, but even not any any other member of other Vaishnav Sampradaya, Sri Sampradaya and Imbarka Sampradaya, they, none of them accept the doctrine that the soul can fall from Vaikuntha. But today, of course, we want to concentrate in our own sampradaya, we have enough with our own sampradaya. What to speak about it? <laughs> so, I would like to to share some extra evidence apart from what, of course, Sila Prabhupada has mentioned here. You have quoted one famous two two times in the Gita. This comes in Bhagavad Gita eight twenty one and in Bhagavad Gita fifteen six. Almost the same idea. Jat gatvana nivartate dhamma paramamma or jat kapyana nivartate dhamma paramamma, which refers to Bhagavan's abode as that place from which, having attained it, one never returns. That's the very last sutra of the Vedanta also. Vedanta Sutra ends saying, anabriti shabdat, anabriti shabdat, which means there is no return from Vaikuntha, basically, because shabda, because the Shastra says so. The Gita also, I don't know, in 15th chapter, 16th verse, Krishna is speaking about how in the spiritual world, every living entity is called infallible, akshara. So infallible means there's no possibility of fall, of fault. Or in the Bhagavatam 2.9.10, also famous verse. I won't torture you with the Sanskrit, but it says that in that personal abode of Bhagavan, of the Lord, the material modes of ignorance, tamaguna, and passion do not prevail, nor is there any of the influence of goodness. Not even sattva guna is there. In other words, 
there is no predominance, the verse says, of the influence of time. So what to speak of the illusory external energy? It cannot enter that region. In other words, Maya cannot enter by Kuntha. The Gunas cannot enter by Kuntha. Material time cannot enter by Kuntha. Therefore, what can make you fall from by Kuntha apart from the Gunas, apart from Maya? So over and over again, it's clear there is no entry point for Maya Shakti into the realm, into the spiritual world. I remember being taught as a kid that, uh, like in a really, in a really kind of simple way to explain, was that we were with playing with Krishna. We were with Krishna, and then uh, a thought came in our mind, like of envy or something, and we were like, uh, maybe I want to be Krishna. And at that very moment, we were cast down into this world. Uh, and 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 even though we were with Krishna playing with him, that's like what I was taught as a kid. As a kid, you say this. <laughs> you are no longer a kid now, Rasa. Right, right. You, I mean, you need an yeah. upgraded version than the stork in the chimney now. Right, right. <laughs> but that has a role. Again, that has a purpose. That's a good point that you mentioned. I mean, for you, I'm sure it made sense for you maybe when you hear that as a kid. It was like, okay, it makes sense because it's a complex thing to think about yeah. origins and all the things. So it's not for everyone again. So there are some provisional, if you will, versions of the ultimate conclusion that may have some purpose for a certain time. But again, yeah. then you are faced with these other statements that you need to do something. You know, the Bhagavatam, for example, 11, 29, 34, it's saying that someone who attains by Kuntha attains a transcendental body such as the one that the Lord has. So the point is, if I attain, have a body like Krishna's or Vishnu's similar, and I can fall from there, that means he can fall also because we have a similar body. Basically, mm. <laughs> we have a similar existence. And again, you mentioned I, you be, became envious of Krishna, but what does it mean became envious of Krishna? Envious, envy means Maya, the Gunas. So again, there is no entry point of the Gunas. Right. Mm. So, and again, beyond Bhagavad Gita, beyond Bhagavatam, beyond quote unquote, apart from, <laughs> especially for us Godis, as, as we mentioned before, we have the need of, to go into the books of the Goswamis where they deal with this topic in a really interesting way. Now, sometimes I know some devotees may say, we don't need the books of the Goswamis, only Srila Prabhupada's books, it's, everything is there, he gave us everything. And you are right, because <laughs> Prabhupada gave us the Goswamis, no? and in his books, he pointed to the books of the Goswamis over and over again. The other day I was reading Srila Prabhupada's very first purport to the very first birth, very first chapter, very first cant of the Bhagavatam. And he's saying that, that within the past, 500 years, many erudite scholars and acharyas like Jiva Goswami, Sanatana Goswami, Vishwanachakavarti Thakur, Balabhachari, even other Sampradaya, and many other distinguished scholars, even after the time of Lord Chaitanya, made elaborate commentaries on the Bhagavatam. And this serious student will do well to attempt to go through them to better, to better relish the transcendental messages. So he's pointing us he's to saying. these other commentaries. He's saying in the first purport to his whole Bhagavatam. Like the, 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 the newest person reading that. I mean, it's right there. It's there. The point is, are we seeing that or not? Right. <laughs> because the more we say everything is Prabhupada's book, the more this type of statements get confirmed. For example, also he makes a very interesting emphasis in Srila Jiva Goswami's Satsandarvas, which I would like to emphasize because he deals there with this topic of where the Jiva is coming from. Mm -hmm. And Srila Prabhupada calls Srila Jiva Goswami 
the greatest philosopher of all time, the greatest scholar of Srimad Bhagavatam. <clears throat> and regarding his Sandarvas, he said that these Sandarvas are recognized as the most scholarly work in the world. There is no comparison of his philosophical approach to the Vaishnav school. So, I mean, he's saying that in his books, Chaitanya Charitamrita says something similar to the Sandarva. He said this, this Satsandarvas is the essence of all scripture. And this work presents the ultimate limit of all Siddhanta concerning Bhagavan. So my point is all the things are there in Shastra. And when you find this, naturally you will say, okay, I would like to read that book. I mean, it's so special for Prabhupada, so special for Krishna Das, Kaviraj Goswami. And someone, I heard recently the argument, someone told me, we have only to read whatever Prabhupada translated. If he didn't translate any book, it is because we do not have to read it. No. <laughs> mm. So I thought, well, that means then that we have to read only to the 13th chapter of the Bhagavatam, because the 10th canto, because Prabhupada didn't pass away after that. Yeah. So it means we don't have to read all the other remaining chapters of the 10th canto, 11th canto, 12th canto, because... Prabhupada didn't do it. It's not he didn't do it because he didn't like it. He, you know, he didn't have time. Krishna called him. <laughs> and yes. especially what to speak about translating a monumental work like Satsandarva of Jiva Goswami. It's such a big book and Prabhupada was already engaged in such a big uh, project with the Srimad Bhagavatam. So let me go for a minute to this Satsandarva of Jiva Goswami because he deals with this topic during detail. For example, Satsandarva is divided in six. It's six treatises, one of them called Bhagavad Sandarva. And in chapter 61, the chapters there are called Anuchedas. In chapter 61 of Bhagavad Sandarva, Srila Jiva Goswami mentions 10, 10 characteristics, 10 attributes of Vaikuntha. And he says the third attribute of Vaikuntha is those who have arrived there never fall. And therefore, he mentions nobody falls from Vaikuntha. The 63rd Anucheda of Bhagavad Sandarva is called No One Falls from Vaikuntha. One can study, for those who would like to do some detailed research, you can study Anucheda 61 to 70, even. And there's Srila Jiva Goswami, who is our Tattvacharya, important term for us, which means from the sixth Goswami, he especially has been empowered by Mahaprabhu to establish the theology and the Siddhanti conclusions of our Gaudiya Sampradaya. So there Jiva Goswami refers to Vaikuntha as Achyuttapada. Achyuttapada means place of no fall down. Mm. A place, a platform, infallible platform, basically. And there, of course, beyond quoting verses and doing copy-paste with Shastra, also we have to exercise our common sense. So we have to think, okay, if I'm in Vaikuntha or in Golok Vrindavan, that means that the platform of pure love, fully inhabited by Swarup Shakti, there is no other influence apart from Prem, the most powerful energy of Bhagavan. So if some devotee falls from the shelter of the Swarup Shakti, it means, and the Swarup Shakti is the most powerful energy of Bhagavan, this implies that there is something more powerful than the Swarup Shakti. But we never hear anywhere that there is something more powerful than the Swarup Shakti. Swarup Shakti is so powerful that it attracts Krishna himself. Krishna Karsini and, and the inhabitants of the spiritual world, <clears throat> technically speaking, they do not have love for Krishna. They are, they are made of love of, for Krishna. They are love of Krishna personified. Sometimes they are called ragatmikas. They're all, the whole Atma or being is made of raga, of love for Krishna. So what can make you fall? If you are a perfected devotee, a perfected devotee cannot engage in sin there is no envy in Golok, just in case. 
and a perfect devotee cannot engage in aparad. Uh, they are not aware of Maya there. I mean, there's no awareness that there is something called Maya Shakti. <laughs> there's yeah. only predominance of Swarup Shakti. Yeah. So if you suggest Maya Shakti can have some influence in a resident of, of the spiritual world, basically you are saying Swarup Shakti is fallible because they are made of that. And, and, and if that is accepted, somehow Vaishnavism becomes reduced to mayabad basically because mayabad declares what in, in among other things maya is covering brahman and that's what we call jiva according to them so similarly this idea that we fall from vaikuntha is in one sense with all respect worse than mayabad because it implies a part of the swarup shakti not only brahman but swarup shakti itself is covered with maya and, and they fell the eternal associate of whoever and Srila Jiva Goswami then further states in the, in the Sandarvas that Bhagavan has a very powerful determination, Sankalpa, he took the vow to never abandon his devotees. Mm. Remember, and Krishna is Satya Sankalpa. Satya Sankalpa means he whose determination never fails. Right. So how this will fail him? If we feel, think that we can fall from Vaikuntha, that means Krishna is failing in being protective, nourishing, affectionate to his devotees, and then Jiva Goswami posts a famous verse from the Bhagavatam, chapter 9, uh, Canto 9, sorry, chapter 4, verses 63 to 68, starting with the Hambakta Parad, you know, very beautiful series of six verses, where Bhagavan himself in Vaikuntha is telling to Durbasamuni, you may know the story when he tried to kill Ambarish Maharaj, right. Bhagavan is saying, How much I love my devotees. Hambakta Parad, you know, and so on. No, I'm totally controlled by my devotees. I don't have the least independence and so on. So this is Vishnu speaking to Ambarish in Vaikuntha. What to speak of Krishna speaking in Golok about the Brajavasis? <laughs> yeah. How much this applies to Vrindavan? So you're and, so you're saying so you're saying that the the point that uh, that why would Krishna allow that to happen? Like it's it, when, when that thing was spoken to me as a kid, it's like there, it was like Krishna has no part in that story there. It's just like, I was thinking something and then it happened. But, but the reality is that Krishna is so much more involved in, in, in the life of his pure devotees and associates that yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Really? That's my point. Krishna is generally is depicted as an ocean of mercy, even to the conditioned souls. Right. So if he's an, so merciful to the condition, so how much merciful he is with his own associates in Vaikuntha, if you will, right. how much attached he is to them, how much they are part of his life and vice versa. Right. So my point is, if we were in Vaikuntha, we fell from there, and he was not able to protect us in that moment from falling, huh? we were serving him lovingly, but somehow became distracted and fell, and he was not able to guarantee protection why should we believe in him now and go again mm. there with the risk of falling again or something like that yeah. so the idea that actually the very word by kuntha mean no limits or without anxiety so try to imagine according to this doctrine all of the jivas in in, in every single planet fall from by kuntha so you can imagine a lot of jivas are falling constantly so and, and, the, and the place is called free from anxiety try to imagine being a place where you may be the next falling from Vaikuntha, but the place called without anxiety is kind of ironic, sarcastic even. Right. The place should be called Sakunta, which means the abode of full anxiety because 
everyone is falling after the other. Maybe I'm next yeah. one. I mean, that's not free from anxiety whatsoever. Right. <laughs> and, and the point even, if you want to play out some further philosophical implications, if one devotee hmm, attained by Kunta, hmm, I mean, you cannot, if, even if you would like to recall your former material experience, you cannot do that because you no longer have a subtle body in which all the samskars, all the impressions are, are stored. Right. Rupa Goswami mentioned this in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu 1.1.23. He says, Bhakti destroys all varieties of karma, includes your subtle body, gross body, impressions. So that's not possible. And Krishna, going back to Krishna for a moment, as you mentioned, if Krishna's eternal associate fall, that makes Krishna less. Because one of the four unique attributes of Krishna that Rupa Goswami also mentions that make Krishna unique even above Narayan are Prem Madhurya, Lila Madhurya, and of course, Rupa Madhurya and Benu Madhurya. But Prem Madhurya and Lila Madhurya means Krishna has a very unique type of Prem for his devotees. So if Krishna has a unique type of Prem for his devotees that defines him, but those devotees at some point fell, he cannot express that Prem to, towards those devotees because now they are fallen. So Krishna has become less. That unique quality that made Krishna unique, Prem Madhurya, is no longer operative with that particular devotee because he's no longer in Vaikuntha or Lila Madhurya. Krishna has very unique pastimes with his devotees. But if those devotees fall, so Krishna's Lila Madhurya will become affected because those devotees are no longer there. So Krishna himself is becoming less. So this theory is not only making less of, <laughs> of, of Vaikuntha, but of Krishna himself, basically. No? And right. And Rupa Goswami also makes this point when he speaks about different types of jivas. He mentions Nitya Badas, Nitya Siddhas, <clears throat> Sadhana Siddhas, and Kripa Siddhas. And we can speak about sadhakas ourselves, who are in between being perfected, not yet, but not longer conditioned souls in every sense of the term. But the point is, according to the list of different types of souls, eternally conditioned, eternally perfected, perfected through practice, perfected through extreme mercy on the practitioners, according to this list, none of them could have been previously in Golok Vrindavan. Because again, not in Nityabada, which means always conditioned, not in Nityasiddha, because it means always enlightened, <laughs> and right. so on. And I don't want to go into the details, but but even if you for a moment consider this idea of her, the Nityasiddhas may fall. I mean, what does it imply? Lalita Saki may fall at any moment, Jashoda will fall, Purnamasi may fall. Uh, if they need to see the fall, they cannot be called need to see this after they're, they're falling. Because if they fall from Golok <laughs> and then they return, they will call Sadhana Siddhas because they return, they attain perfection. Sadhana. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So they, they, the, the role, the term need to see that is no longer applicable. And that change also do not fit properly with the permanent eternal atmosphere in Vaikuntha. Need to see them is there's always Nandamaras, there's always Jashoda, there's always Krishna <laughs> that cannot be interrupted. The flow of the Lila cannot be interrupted. So, in conclusion, basically, the fall of Vaikuntha basically is not mentioned in one single verse in Shastra overtly. Uh, and if we accept the theory, somehow, again, we are accepting that some material concepts like Maya Shakti are infiltrating in Vaikuntha and its inhabitants, Krishna, Krishna included. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and of course, I know there are some arguments, and I don't know if you have some minutes we can address some of the brief arguments. Sometimes. Oh, we have plenty of time, Mahara. Or, or maybe you have some arguments you may like to present. Well, well um, I wanted to make a few points. Yeah. Uh, one of them being the, um, so if we didn't fall from Vaikuntha, some Gaudiya Vaishnavs say that we fell from somewhere else. Yeah. But but can I address some arguments related to the last ones related to fall from Vaikuntha before going to some yes, somewhere else? Yes, 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 you can. But but um, also, yeah. I want to also discuss, um, yeah. you know, there's a paper that was written about the official ISKCON position. So if you could, after you say what you want to say, I want to kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. No, basically, I was mentioning some devotees may say, <clears throat> Okay, but sometimes we are described as fallen. Jiva's falling in the world. There, the expression is used here and there. Right. And, and some may say, okay, but if you are falling, it means you have to fall from a non-falling place because every other place is already falling in the material world. So it means we fell from Vaikuntha because that's the only non-falling place you can fall from. Mm. So sometimes, again, this is not quoting Shastra. It's just using logic first and then trying to connect with Shastra, but ideally it should be the opposite. Shastra first, and then we are to apply our logic and common sense. But the point is, it's mostly a, an expression. I can say, for example, hell, hellish planets. They are a fallen place, but they did not become falling at one particular time, point in time. They are falling. There was never a time when hell was not fallen place. You follow? So in the same way, to call hell a fallen place, that not implied that it was not previously fallen, that hell for, was before Swarga and fell and now became hell or something. Right. So in, this, in the same way, we may describe as fallen souls, but actually it doesn't mean that that necessarily had a beginning. We will speak about that in a while. Of course, sometimes some other arguments, I, I remember you, you shared that with me at one point, sharing some ideas, say, well, it it doesn't care where we, we we come from, but where are we going to? Yes. <laughs> and on, on one level, I agree, of course. And I agree that not for everyone, this question is a necessity. Where do we come from and so on? Like some people might not care. Like who, they'll be like, it doesn't matter to me. Like, okay, you can turn off the podcast. I mean, it's not, if you don't care about it, <laughs> but some people you are, yeah, you, care about you it. You are not obliged to continue hearing me speaking and hearing this <laughs> podcast for sure. <laughs> Right. Uh, but the point is that if we feel, if you think that we come from Golok, the point is you say, I don't care where I'm coming from, I care where I want to go. But if you think you, I fell from Golok, means where I want to go is the same place I think I'm coming from. <laughs> so in that case, that creates some, some complications because I want to go to a place that supposedly I fell from. So if I fell from, what's the guarantee that I won't fell again? I won't fall again. Yes, yes. And, 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 right. things, and things like this. And of course, sometimes also some other, uh, sometimes I hear also the achintia excuse, if you will. Achintia, sometimes when you don't know what to say, you will say achintia. Inconceivable, yeah. Achintia. We, uh, everything is happening. We fell and we didn't fail at the same time. But the point is achintia, the term achintia is a, it's a very important one, but can be a very dangerous one. Achintya is not to be invoked when trying to do away with something that we cannot understand. No, it's not just like the last resort when I don't know what to say, Achintya. 
but actually Achinti has a lot to do with the process of how to understand everything. Srila Jiva Goswami describes Achintya not as something we cannot understand, but as those things that we can only understand by referring to Shastra. If we do not refer to Shastra, certain things will remain Achintya. And the only way for them to not be Achintya and conceivable is to take shelter in Shastra. And when you go to Shastra, Achintya stops being Achintya, if you will. So, it, interestingly, that's the main idea of Achintya. It's not something that I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, it's, it's, it's Achintya. But it's, I don't know, but Shastra is, Shastra knows. <laughs> and if we go to Shastra, we'll realize, oh, what, what's the meaning of Shastra? Some brief words with your permission about Shastra, because it's an important point for me. It's, Shastra implies to know those things what, that we cannot know otherwise, basically. Shastra mm -hmm. is the absolute itself, God himself extending himself to us, the infinite becoming himself available, knowable, for, to define it, ourself. Mm -hmm. Shastra represents a comprehensive means of knowing, by, as my Guru Maharaj will say, by which we feel there's nothing left to be known. No? Full, comprehensive revelation, satisfaction. Mm -hmm. So Shastra has this type of style, if you will. You hear something, and makes perfect sense, but at the same time, you will have never thought about that by yourself, independently of Shastra. But when you go to Shastra, oh, it's perfectly clear, and it makes perfect sense. So again, our faith, as I mentioned in the beginning, and with this I'm finishing this point, is to be Shastriya. Faith has to be developed in the context of what Shastra is telling. Rupa Goswami also uses the word Shastri Yukti, we have to use our head, my Guru Maharaj will say, to soften our heart. We have to think in order to melt our heart. But do not try to soften your heart without applying your intellect in the context of Shastra. That's an important point. Now try to use your head to soften your heart, but do not try to soften your heart without using your head in the proper way, in the context of, again, what Shastra is saying. So a timing Siddhanta implies a lot of do with harmonizing, sangati, reconciliation. If we are not willing to do that, maybe not. it's not our task, but someone has to do that. <laughs> because if not, it will be only cherry-picking, cherry-picking. So the idea of falling from Vaikuntha is, is basically not, uh, it's counterintuitive to what Shastri is saying, basically. And- uh, Question. Sorry? I have a question. Yeah. Um, you, I like that point that you said about it's Shastra is Bhagavan becoming available to us. Mm. Uh, but how does that practically work in the sense of we've always been told that, okay, we can't read it. We can't understand everything that's in Shastra. It needs to be explained to us mm -hmm. with the, by the self-realized person who like the book Bhagavat and the person Bhagavat. It's like, you know, so the point that you're saying about that we have that we're getting perfect knowledge from shastra but there's that explanation that needs to come toward us how do we reconcile that from what you're saying well basically that's present of course for sure i mean it's totally our tradition in particular is a very ongoing commentate commentatorial i don't know if that word exists whatsoever well it <laughs> exists now <laughs> of commentaries and that's right. an important point i wanted to make that Shastra is saying something, and the sadhu is with his own, her own, sadhu, sadhvi, with her own, his own life and example. For example, Sila Siddharth will say, the, the, the newspaper will say, 
today will, it will be raining. But if you squeeze the newspaper, water won't come out of that. <laughs> you, you need to go out and enter in touch directly with rain. So oh. somehow also the Shastra is pointing and it's the absolute self-revealing in certain direction. But at the same time, all those ideas and all those truths mm, are becoming fully alive in the person of the sadhus mm, in our lives. So, and that's why that this, this is an interesting point I want to mention because someone may say, okay, so therefore there are many sadhus and the parampara are contributing with different commentaries. And even though the Shastra originally reveals something, whatever conclusion, there is place for the development of Siddhanta. There is place for that. For example, the six Goswamis did not speak clearly overtly about, for example, Nitya Lila with Mahaprabhu in Nitya Navadvip. But some other members of the Parampara presented that idea after the Goswamis. Actually, I plan to write a second book after the one I'm writing in this connection. Wow. But the point is, there is place for certain development of the Siddhanta as much as those developments are not contradicting the original Siddhanta. So my point, if, if the Shastra is saying we don't fall from Vaikuntha and Samacharya says at some moment we fall from Vaikuntha, that's not the development of Siddhanta because that opposes Siddhanta. It's not the development of Siddhanta. Of course, with this, I'm not saying that person is deviated. I'm not <laughs> demonizing anyone. I'm just saying... Let's, or, let's analyze why he or she say that. It's not that because Prabhupada at one point said to someone, we fell from Vaikuntha. From that moment on, some souls started to fall from Vaikuntha because Prabhupada said so. <laughs> and because before Prabhupada, since nobody said that, nobody was falling from Vaikuntha. But after that, that started to happen. It's, it doesn't work like that. So yes, we see it. For moments, Prabhupada said this. But in many other occasions, he very clearly established which is the Siddhanta on this topic. So, of sometimes course, I, I imagine the next question may be why, why, how to understand what problems. <laughs> I mean, so, we yeah. you were kind of going in circles in the sense of because we're coming back to that same point. But uh, but sometimes we, I feel like we could take Prabhupada out of the parampara and kind of make it like he like he made his own philosophy regarding mm. things when when that is actually uh not true he was simply coming and and uh, revealing or or kind of communicating siddhanta according to the previous acharyas that that have always been there you know and i think like it's definitely i feel i feel personally that it's a disservice to pull Prabhupada out of the parampara and say and and in in a mood of glorification that oh he he created his own thing and and it's like divorcing him from the rest of the parampara and uh, I mean that's that's a, also a contentious topic but I think it's I think it's important to note that because then we can reconcile all these things but when you do, when you don't when you don't pull when you don't do that and you kind of keep him as the proper and it doesn't minimize his position i don't think it minimizes his position i think it increases his position as being the 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 pure via media of the parampara and coming to all the Western world and spreading Krishna consciousness all over the world. I think that's a, I think it's a, it's a, anyway, that's just wanted to share that. Yeah, totally agree with that. Uh, Prabhupada himself say my, my, my only success is that I never deviated an inch from the destruction of my Guru Maharaj, basically over and over again. He said, I'm not trying, I'm not giving something new here. My movement is the movement of Bhaktivinoda. He himself 
linked himself with his Purbacharas, with his Guru Maharaj, his Param Gurudev, and so on. Yeah. So if in the name of glorifying Prabhupada, we reach this type of things, he made his own Sampradaya and Siddhanta, and we don't care for whatever anyone say before or after him or whatever. Yeah, that's in itself is a topic for another episode. But, right. but I don't know if I want to do that episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> I don't really get crosshairs on me, on my back. Anyway, yeah, continue, please. <laughs> No, I agree with your point. I'm, I'm not saying there's bad intention. There may be a really good intention, but pretty naive yet, pretty innocent. So in the name of glorifying Prabhupada, you over-glorify. In one sense, you can never glorify enough someone like Srila Prabhupada. But in another sense, you can over-glorify him by, like, by saying things like this. He created his own Siddhanta and Sampradaya. He's so unique, and, but that's not pleasing to him. That's, I mean, when we glorify someone like Srila Prabhupada, we always bear in mind what will give him pleasure. No? So he didn't create anything new. He himself said that no new Siddhanta, no new Sampradaya, but he loyally followed Parampara, which is not less, again, which is not to speak. Sometimes we may feel the need of making our Acharyas ultra, hyper, super unique <laughs> because our weak faith needs that. But it's right. not that really the other person needs that. Sometimes right. in the name of doing that, we are doing a disservice to the other person by, as you mentioned, alienating the person from the whole parampara. Yeah. So glorifications have to be expressed in the context of, of Siddhanta. Yeah. So, so yeah. Wanted, yeah, sorry. I wanted to go, uh, before you, you end that point, but I wanted to talk about if we don't fall from Vaikuntha, do we fall from somewhere else? Yeah. Uh, Kanye mentioned two, three, two brief words about yes. why Prabhupada say what he said at some moments that we felt from my country. Sure, 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 yeah. And of course, I don't want to, to, to resort to this quote that preaching is strategy again. Let's use some other words like teachable moment or something. <laughs> <laughs> circumstantial recipe or you choose the one you like the most. But it's important to do this type of historical sociological journey and understanding Prabhupada has some urgency in his campaign. Yeah. I mean, he didn't know how longer he was going to live and he has some urgency in his message, in his presentation. And he was, I mean, in front of a new audience. So he had two heart attacks before arriving to West, you know, all these. So in certain topics, complex topics like this one, these are complex topics. He considered at some moments, at some moment he really presented Siddhanta, as we mentioned, but sometimes he simplified the presentation, in, and especially speaking specifically to some devotees in morning walks or classes or personal conversations. Because again, the origin of the jiva or the source of the jiva is not so easy to digest to the Western DNA, as we will see, because we have in our blood sometimes Christian notions like fall from grace or linear time, not yeah. so much thinking in terms of non-beginnings, eternal time, circular time. So in that moment, I will, I personally feel he didn't consider it so important to, to hammer on this particular topic you know, again. And, and again, he said that jivas fall from Golok, but also he said they do not. So personally, what I'm trying to do here, resolving this issue similarly to how I solved the fact of non-inherent bhakti. I don't want to go to the previous podcast, but this was similar. I found there are, the two things are being said. So how I'm trying to harmonize that in connection to our original uh, Shastra Gurus of the Sampradaya, the Goswami have said. So, and I heard some devotees saying, well, but there are, it, it is more times that Prabhupada say we fell 
that the ones that he say we didn't fail. <laughs> no? no, not in the books, at least, as we have seen, maybe in letters or something. But the point is, it's not about counting how many times the chairs say one thing or the other, because if, if we think in those terms, for example, uh, if that's the final proof, how many times he say that, the Bhagavatam says only once, Krishna is two Bhagavans, so yeah. It's only one line of one verse. But that line of one verse constitutes all the Siddhanta around which the whole Sampradaya is revolving around the 18,000 verses of the Bhagavatam revolve around and so on. So it's not about how many times something is being said. Yeah. Or, or sometimes they want to say in Prabhupada use the term back to Godhead, you know, like his motto, you say. So it means we have been there and we have to go back there and so on. But if you know the story of this quote that he used from, for his famous magazine, also this came from one, he was taken, he took that from a lecture from the Archbishop of Canterbury. And Prabhupada himself mentioned this in the very first issue of the Back to Godhead magazine. And, and here I have what the, uh, let me see, what this Archbishop said to, to understand the context of the quote. Wow, oh, I God. didn't know this. This is cool. Oh, no, you didn't know that? No. Oh, okay. This is the quote, and this is the context. The Archbishop is saying, the older people in society have turned away from God, and this is the root cause of all the ills. And therefore, these problems can only be solved if everyone in society turns back to Godhead. So if you understand the context of the quote, it's not speaking about we fell from my country. <laughs> what? That, that, that quote's from the Archbishop Bishop of Canterbury? Yeah, yeah, wow. Prabhupada took it from that, and he, he Prabhupada himself quotes this in the first edition, first issue of his Back to Godhead magazine. Wow. So the, the context of the quote is very different to the idea of falling from the spiritual world. It's mostly presenting this notion that in our tradition, sometimes we call Bahir Mukya and Antar Mukya. Antar Mukya, yeah. like looking at Krishna and Bahir Mukya, like turning our face away from God. It's right. mostly a figure of speech only. So it's not to make a whole Siddhanta around that. So I, I, I did some ideas I want to share in connection to some things that Prabhupada says in that in, in that sense. Right. So if you don't fall from Golok, where do we come from? <laughs> that, that's the question now? Yeah, that's the question now. Mm, okay. So first I would like to address some other mm, typical theory that is shared in some circles, Kodia circles, different from falling from Golok or falling from Vaikuntha. Sometimes it is said that we fall from Brahman or from Brahma Jyoti, basically. So what, what is to be said in this connection? Well, to begin with, there is again, not one single verse in Shastra that is stating in a conclusive way that this is going on, that we fall from Brahman, if you will. And if you are to embrace this idea that we fall from Brahman or that we fall from uh, Brahma Jyoti and some point in history and that the soul takes, like, becomes aware of the sense of individuality in Brahman and in that moment there is some option to choose between going to spiritual world or going to material world. Sometimes this, this scenario is depicted. We are in between the two in this effulgence and we somehow become aware of ourselves, and we have the option to choose to go to Vaikuntha or to go to come here. And that's mm -hmm. when our conditioned life begins. Sometimes this idea is presented, but of course, some questions come if we accept the theory. To begin with, if according to this theory, the jiva doesn't have any previous experience 
nor of the spiritual world, nor of the material world, what is the meaning and the value of that choice? How can I choose among two things that I do not know? Do you imagine? Do you understand? Mm. If I don't have a clue about what's spiritual world, material world, and someone tells me, choose among the two, what's the value of the choice? I don't mm. have previous experience or information about that. Or even if, if, if some partial knowledge of Krishna and Maya were available to the jiva at that moment for choosing in that limbo condition, if you will, the, the question will be, how could the jiva possibly choose Maya over Krishna if Krishna is all attractive? <laughs> yeah. No? If you have a glimpse of the two prospects and so on. Or another question that may come is, how can a jiva from Brahman choose to go to Vaikuntha and enter the spiritual world without bhakti? Because all the scriptures say, if you want to enter spiritual world, that's through bhakti. So it's not just about saying, I choose there. And you enter by Kunta. <laughs> and also an interesting point is that in Brahman, or Brahman Jyoti, actually there is nobody there. Nobody in which sense. There is no sense of individuality. So if there is no sense of individuality, who is choosing what? There is an homogeneous experience there. Because a choice, to make a choice implies individuality. But in Brahman, the scriptures say, Brahman Jyoti, there is no sense of individuality. So actually, it is just mentioned that there is no specific geographic area between the spiritual and material worlds called sometimes Brahman, Brahmajyoti, or Tatasta. Sometimes that is depicted as trying to help us like conceptualize something, but it's not some place called Tatasta Loka or Tatasta Shakti, like a line between the two worlds. No? It's an imaginary line, if you will. But Tatasta, when we say Tatasta Jiva or Tatasta Shakti, Tatasta is what the Jiva is constitutionally made of, nothing else. It's not a planet or a place. And, Bhagavad, and the Srimad Bhagavatam on the other side defines Brahman or Brahma Jyoti as one of the three aspects of the Absolute. Dameti Paramatmeti Bhagavaniti Shabdyate. And Jiva Shakti is something different. Sometimes this idea is mixed. Jiva Shakti or Tatasta Shakti is the same as Brahman or Brahma Jyoti, but it's not the same. Brahman is one of three features of the Absolute, Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. And Jiva Shakti <clears throat> is one of the different Shaktis of the Absolute. So Brahman is not made of, of Jiva Shakti or something like this. So Tatasta is not a place, but a Shakti of the Supreme. And that's Jiva Shakti, as we can live under the influence of both Maya Shakti or ideally, Swarup Shakti. And there's one more point, if you give allow me for a minute in this connection, or you have some question, I don't know. No, no. Uh, I just wanted to add, if, if, if devotees are asking questions in the comment section, if you could please keep it short, because it, it won't show up completely on the screen. It's like a more practical thing. It won't show up completely on the screen if you ask a, if you if you write a whole paragraph. So, mm. and for devotees asking questions in the comment section of this video, please keep it concise. Or if you want to break up break up your question into into different comments, that would really be helpful. Thank you. We'll take mm. questions afterward. But Maharaj, yeah, please continue. Okay. So interesting in this connection, <clears throat> not only the jiva does not come from Brahman, does not fall from Brahman. But another common misunderstanding, which is not fully connected to today's topic, but is connected, and I would like to clarify, another idea is that those who attain Brahman, or the jnanis, 
will eventually fall from there at some point. Strictly speaking, that won't happen. Brahman, try to understand, Brahman is near Guna, describing Shastra, without the influence of Gunas. Therefore, it's not affected by the Gunas. It's not affected by Maya Shakti. So it means if you arrive to Brahman, that constitutes a permanent condition of liberation called Sayuja Mukti. That's how it's described in the Bhagavatam as Mukti. Right. Of course, we as Gaudiya Vaishnavas totally reject that. <laughs> but that attainment is an eternal one because it's a Mukti. Any type of Mukti is eternal. The Bhagavatam describes Mukti. Mukti Hitanya Tarupam. Both gross and subtle bodies disappear. So there's nothing that can make you fall. For example, if you go to Bhagavatam 3, 29, 13, the, three, the five types of Mukti are described. Saloka, Samipya, Sarsti, Sarupya, and Ekatwa, which is Sayuja Mukti. Brahma Sayuja. Again, Mukti is defined in the Bhagavatam as a permanent situation, which means there is no fall. In Sayuja Mukti, there is no influence of the Gunas. In other words, there is no Maya Shakti operative there. So what can make you fall from there if, if not Maya Shakti? So it's an important that it's important to understand. Jiva Goswami clearly accepts in his Sandarbhas that Brahman realization, Brahma Sayuja is an eternal state of Mukti. You don't have to come down from that. And you can consult the first nine Anuchedas of Bhagavad Sandarva. And I understand there is some sections in the scripture will lend itself to the opposite. For example, famous verse in the Bhagavatam, Aruhya Krichina Paramparam Tadabhimuktamanina, 10 to 32 in the Bhagavatam, which speaks about those who consider themselves liberated. The expression is Bimuktamanina. Manina means consider themselves to be bimuktas. It doesn't mean they are bimuktas. They are not liberated. They think themselves liberated. So this verse speaks about the jnani who may have attained jivan mukta stage, but not yet videha mukti. What's this? Videha mukti means the ultimate liberation after you leave the body. Jivan mukta means you are still on this body. This body still is the prarabdha karma you have to deal with. So if in that stage, you offend bhakti, you commit aparat to bhakti, you fall. That's the, the criticism Srila Prabhupada and our Acharyas have done to the Maya bodies. Maya bodies are those who want impersonal liberation, but who offend bhakti, considering Bhagavan and its form illusory. But also an important this difference between Maya body is that of Brahma body. Brahma body is someone who wants Brahma Sayuja, but is not offending bhakti. It's just inclined in that particular direction. So that person can attain Brahma Sayuja and not fall from that. There are many sections in the Shastra. For example, Brihad Bhagavatam Brita, Sanatan Goswami mentions in 207, he says that the Jivan Muktas, let me see, he said the Jivan Mukta fixed in Brahman can practice bhakti since they still have bodies. But how can those who have attained liberation practice since they do not have bodies, having merged into Brahman? So he clearly states that point. Baladepi devotion similarly in the Vedanta Sutra, Govinda Vasha, he mentions that the liberated person can accept one spiritual body, even more than one, or have no body whatsoever. That's Sayuja Mukti. So, so someone who attains Mukti, Brahman, or who, another type of Mukti, there is no karma. So if you fall from there, let's say, which type of body you will get? Because body is a product of past karma. So if you fall, and, and if you fall from Mukti, from Sayuja Mukti, what's the difference between Sayuja Mukti and, and falling from Swarga, for example? 
Swarga is something similar. You go there, stay for a while and fall. So if everyone going to Brahman falls, what's the difference between that and, and Swarga? Right. And yeah, I don't want to. This is highly technical. Yeah, sorry, sorry, I'm going. No, no, much that's okay. Way. I'm just saying. I'm just no, it's fine. I'm just saying. It's just like there's a. You have to have a certain knowledge of this of of the of different aspects of what you're speaking about. Yeah. You put yeah. these pieces together. Yeah, and, yeah. And for me, this idea also that nobody falls from Brahma Suja also confirms my point from the first podcast, <laughs> which that is that bhakti is not inherent because if bhakti is inherent, if rasa and swarup is inherent. How can I attain Brahma Suyuja and merge into Brahman in a permanent way if there will be a Bhakti Swarup inside of me? What will happen with that Bhakti Swarup that will be frozen or, or, or whatever for eternity or something? So that's another way of confirming wow. also the non-incurrence of, wow. of Bhakti. And of course, there are some, some uh, if you want, if you have some minutes, there are some brief, uh, Mm, let's say, yeah, arguments against this. Someone may say, okay, the natural state of the jiva is to serve Krishna, jiva krishna So how can it is possible that the jiva will stay happy, satisfied in Sayuja Mukti, where there is no conception of serving Bhagavan? And that's a good question. <laughs> but the point is that a person who arrives at Brahma Sayuja is in this effulgence of Bhagavan, and just remaining within the effulgence is a form of service. Just as if the example sometimes given is if you decorate the temple with a flower, the flower is doing service, even though it's there in a passive way, if you will. So being, <laughs> being within Brahma Jyoti is service. Because in one sense, strictly speaking, in Tattva, there is no difference between Krishna and Brahman. Krishna and Brahman are the same absolute. Advaita Gyan Tattva says about a non-dual consciousness. Or one can say this, this, the potential of the jiva or the swarup of the jiva has the potential to do seva, but in Brahma Sayuja is not doing not doing seva. Basically, it's like if you have a servant who is sleeping. Some analogy sometimes may be required. So if, if, if the servant is sleeping, you won't say, oh, he's not a servant because he's not doing seva. He's sleeping, but his identity or his potential identity is still that of the servant. And so in mm -hmm. our conditioned state also, we may not serve, but our saru, our nature, ultimately is das. Mm. Uh, and of course, someone will say, yes, okay, Maharaj, but of course, just to make it clear, I'm not promoting Brahma Sayuja. No, for us, as Gaudiya Vaishnavs, for example, Prabhupada Nanda Sarasvati say, Kaibalyam Narakayate. No, this Brahma Sayuja is like worse than hell. Mm. But of course, we consider it worse than hell from our subjective perspective of what have received, we have received in Bhakti. Because for us, there is no, the bliss of Seva is not in such a mukti. There is only a type of Ananda in Brahman called Brahmananda. There is not Bhaktiananda, Premananda. But again, for someone, for whatever reason, past scars association is attracted in the direction of Brahman. Again, Brahman, what's Brahman? Brahman is the all-pervading aspect of, of God. So the only way you can realize it is through the perception of non-distinction from it. Because if you perceive yourself to be distinct from Brahman, you cannot have full realization of Brahman because that contradicts the very nature of Brahman, which is all-pervading. <laughs> yeah. But for, for us, someone who obtains Brahma Sayuja doesn't mean that became Brahman in every single sense, like the followers of Sankaracharya say. So, okay, yeah, for us, Brahma Sayuja is spiritual suicide, for sure. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 what can, and for us, 
not for them, for us. And why some people commit suicide? Well, for, for a normal, pers normal person, it doesn't make sense to commit suicide. But when you are frustrated, you choose to kill yourself generally. No? So similarly, some people decide to have attain Brahma Sayuja, being frustrated with material suffering and yeah. being ignorant of the bliss of bhakti. So for them, it's understandable and it's, it's they will feel this is perfect for me. So again, the conclusion is nobody falls from Vaikuntha Angolog and nobody falls from Brahman originally, nor initially, but nobody falls from Brahman after having gone there as well. So also that particular theory is, 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 is not the, the ultimate conclusion, basically. So then where did we fall from? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I will say better to reframe the question and to ask, have we fell from anywhere at some point, actually? <laughs> right, good question. Yeah. The answer goes more in that direction. Actually, the answer, the reply to this is that we don't fall from anywhere, strictly speaking. But as, as the Srimad Bhagavatam describes, 11.11.7, you can find, and Rupa Goswami uses the same term, Nitya Bada. So Nitya Bada means eternally conditioned. Of course, eternally conditioned doesn't mean eternally from here to the future, because we are not followers of Madhvacharya in every sense of the term. He has this idea in mind. There are some eternally damned jivas for eternity. That's not for us our Siddhanta. Also a Judeo-Christian conception, <clears throat> isn't it? Like internal damnation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But Nityabhada means we are conditioned without, without the beginning. In other words, the term that sometimes it uses Anadi. Anadi means without beginning, Anadi karma. This is the reply of Mahaprabhu himself. You can find this expression along our Shastra. Yeah. When Sanatana Goswami uh, is being instructed by Mahaprabhu and he asks Mahaprabhu, who I am, basically. Mahaprabhu replies, Krishna Bhuli say Jiva, Anadi Bahirmukh. Yeah. Uh, you know the section. So Anadi Bahirmukh, they will have the, the quote Bahirmukh. Now turning our face from Bhagavan, from time without beginning. That's the situation of the jiva having forgotten Krishna without a beginning point. And, and this is clearly mentioned everywhere in Shastra. In Vedanta Sutra, for example, 2.135, it's clearly established that karma is an adi. In that section, Vedanta Sutra is trying to show God is impartial. <clears throat> this is an important point because so many other things come in the way here. And we may start to wonder why Krishna is like this, allows this to happen and so on. So someone may ask, why we in, in the world we see so much inequality so that may point to Krish, to god not being uh, impartial so the vedanta sutra say no no it's not like that every person is experiencing whatever they are experiencing because of their past actions so the next question in the vedanta sutra itself say well but when when, when everything began Every jiva then started from an unequal situation. And that's when the Vedanta Sutta said no, because karma is an adi. An end of the conversation, basically, for the Vedanta Sutra. So basically, say, if, if you say that the theory of karma cannot explain the inequality in the world, because someone again may say, everyone had the same karma in the beginning, Vedanta Sutta said, there is no beginning. <laughs> There's no beginning to the world and there's no beginning to the souls. And again, this is complex because for our head to think yeah. in terms of no beginning, no, some smoke starts to come. 
So <laughs> I, I understand why Samacharyas didn't enter into the details of this. It's complex. Right. But for example, you go to the Srimad Bhagavatam and make some counting, and at least 20 times the Bhagavatam uses this term anadi. Now, if someone is interested in knowing all these detailed quotes, I can share later in the thread and so on. They can ask me. So anadi avidya, anadi this, anadi without beginning. Even in the in our Mola Granta, the books of the Goswami also in Paramatma Sandarbha 47, Jiva Goswami speaks about two types of jivas, eternally conditioned and the liberated ones. Mm. And Sanskrit, as we spoke last in the last episode, Sanskrit is not lacking in specific terms and expressions for, for expressing every single thing. And Jiva Goswami is someone who knew very well all these terms. But every time he spoke about the conditioning of the jiva, he always used the same term, which is anadi. Interestingly, anadi also comes in the Bhagavad Gita. In, in chapter 13, verse 20, there it is said, that, let, let me read the verse. Primordial nature and the living beings should both be understood to be beginningless, anadi. Their transformations and the modes of nature are products of material nature. And interestingly, in the purport of this verse, Srila Prabhupada gives straightforward Siddhanta in this connection. He says, material nature was absorbed in the personality of Godhead, Mahavishnu, and when it was required, it was manifested by the agency of the Mahatattva. Similarly, the living entities are also in him, and because they are conditioned, they are averse to serving the Supreme Lord. Thus, they are not allowed to enter into the spiritual sky. But with the coming forth of material nature, these living entities are again given a chance to act in the material world and prepare themselves to enter into the spiritual world. That is the mystery of this material creation. <laughs> the, way, the way I see it is that it's like explaining to an ant, you know, like what a a cell phone or something is like it's like <laughs> like we can't understand what anadi is because our our everything is so like linear and like according to our 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 senses and things like that so i feel like it, it's okay i feel okay just being like i don't understand i don't understand i can't conceive of it because it's just something beyond my little brain can conceive <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, I get the point. And, and I understand why, again, many of our acharyas have not gone into the ultimate detail because yeah. that can create some problems for many. And, but at the same time, again, yeah, we're brain, not only yours, mine as well, and most of us in connection to these topics, the brain, every brain is small in connection to things that go beyond the brain, like no beginnings. But at the yeah. same time, Revelation, Shastra, is sharing these right. notions and, and our acharyas have commented in this direction. Prabhupada, Bhakti Siddhanta, Saraswati Thakur, Bhakti Thakur, all of them in this connection agree with this idea that the Nityabhada Jivas come from Mahavishnu. Mm -hmm. And ma come, when I say come, it doesn't mean in one beginning point in time. Mm -hmm. But Mahavishnu is the aspect of Bhagavan that deals with the Shristi Lila, the material creation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For example, in the purport to this verse of the Gita, 1320, both Baladev Vidyabhushan and Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur say the same point, say, the jivas are anadi without beginning. Material nature is anadi without beginning. The union between the two, therefore, is anadi without beginning. Wow. The union between the two is karma. Karma is like the glue that binds jivas with material nature, if you will. The, the connection between Maya Shakti and Jiva Shakti, hmm, is karma. 
And since Maya Shakti and Jiva Shakti is an Adi, therefore the link between the two is an Adi again, an Adi without beginning. Yeah. So, but again, condition Mahabishnu is the deity in charge of this world. Mahabishnu becomes Paramatma. I don't want to complicate too much things, but that's what's described in Shastra. And from Paramatma, the, the Bada Jivas expand. This is declared in the very first person of Bhakti Sandarbha. Jiva Goswami says, Paramatma Vaibhav. The living entities are expansions of the Shakti of Paramatma. So at the end of every creational cycle, when all the material world is in, in an unmanifest condition between creations, you know that there are these creation cycles with the, sometimes compared with the breathing of Mahabishnu and so on. But in between each creation cycle, the material world becomes unmanifest. So the Bada Jivas that were in that particular universe enter Mahabishnu and stop being aware of their own individuality in a state called susupti or deep sleep, basically. Mm -hmm. So until a new creative cycle reactivates along with the karma of each jiva and their sense of individuality, basically. So that's that's the situation, this homogeneity, if you will, in Susupti. Interestingly, the experience of Brahma Sayuja that we described before, and the experience of in Susupti in between creative cycles is quite similar, subjectively speaking. And that's why sometimes some contemporary acharyas have used the term Brahman when describing Susupti with regard to the movement of the Tatasta Jiva from homogeneity to heterogeneity. Sorry for so many complex topics terms, but okay. in Shastra, this is like this, this susupti or dreamless sleep is also compared to Brahman sometimes. But the point is that susupti or this deep sleep between creative cycles is an homogeneity, a lack of individuality, awareness of individuality that does not endure. It just endure for time in which karma is temporarily suspended, but not fully eradicated. When, when you go to Brahma Sayuja, karma is totally fully eradicated. Mm. Mm. So again, this coming and going of, of the Anadi Bada Jivas or Nitya Bada Jivas from Susupti and out of Susupti and in of Susupti and out of Susupti has no beginning any more than Mahavishnu himself has no beginning. Mm. So yes, sometimes some contemporary Acharya have tried to give a more rational explanation to this phenomenon more according to our Western sensibilities, we fell from someone, we came from someone. Because again, you know, we are facing a Western audience. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I don't know, Bhakti Notago himself spoke about Anadi Karma. Anad, he has a very famous song, Anadi Karma Fali. It is commentary to Brahma Samhita. He speaks in terms of Anadi. And also, I know that at some point, someone might say, okay, I don't have a problem with Anadi, but I. But sometimes Anadi has been translated as from time immemorial. Mm. Mm. And sometimes the idea of time immemorial for some is it's long time ago, but it started at some point. But strictly speaking, Anadi doesn't mean that. Anadi means no Adi. Adi means beginning. Anadi means no beginning. Mm. I know that sometimes Sula Prabhupada translated Anadi as from time immemorial, which seems to indicate there was a beginning. But beyond one's remembrance, if you will. Yeah. But it's also interesting to note that Srila Prabhupada, when he used the time, the term immemorial, he's actually refers to time that is not existing actually. It's not referring to a time that is beyond my scope, but that has never existed. For example, 
if you study his purport to verse 118, 20th chapter of Madhya Lila of Chaitanya Charitamrita, he speaks about the Nitya Muktas. Nitya Mukta means what? Eternally liberated souls. And he described there as devotees from time immemorial. That doesn't, mean, is, yeah, it doesn't mean that it was a beginning. It was, it was exactly, exactly. Forever they are devotees. All of them are devotees from time immemorial, but it right. doesn't mean that they began, but we cannot remember when that began. They began to be Yashoda or something. Right. So it's important to understand what's the intention of the author when using the expression. So in this way, Anadi doesn't mean time immemorial, but time without, without beginning, beginningless time. In the same way that Adi, Adi mean, be, means beginning. Adi doesn't mean something in, in the scope of my memory. <laughs> Adi mm -hmm. means beginning, and, and Adi means no beginning. So yes, I, I know that this is a complex topic, and I understand why sometimes this was simplified. Right. There's a, there's a quote that Prabhupada uh, usually quoted from, I think it's from Pema Vivarta, Jagadananda Pandit, I think. He says, um, Krishna Bhuliyaji Bhagavan Shakare Pasite Mayatare Japatiyadare Krishna Bhuliyaji, meaning they forget Krishna. So doesn't that mean that uh, something forgetful means that you knew it beforehand? No, no, it's the same what Mahaprabhu said to Sanatana Goswami. Krishna Bhuli say Jiva Anadi Bahirmo. Oh, right, right. So Krishna Bhuli means forgotten Krishna. When Anadi, time without beginning. <laughs> right, okay. So again, it's, it's a way of how we use language and how we tend to understand certain expressions, basically. Yeah. You know? uh, Mara, with your permission, if we could go into the comments section. Yeah, yeah. I, so I have some further ideas, but we can go, yeah. So the, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion uh, and a lot of like big chunks of of text that i'm that i can't read right now okay but, I, I, will, I will try eventually to take the time to hopefully reply to all of them in case we do not we are not able to address all of them just in case yeah so i'm just going to go down to see what questions i can take that are kind of short and concise okay. um can you see the comments also no oh okay I'm, uh, I'm, not, I'm not in Facebook. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, okay, here's one. Oh, I think you... Okay, you already answered this. This is from my friend, Karuna Sindhu. So um, this was regarding the, the quote by um, the Archbishop of Canterbury that Prabhupada said himself that... Yeah, that was already addressed, I will say. Maybe that question was before I, I clarified that. Okay, here's another thing. Shilagora Govinda Maharaj has written that Vaikuntha can refer to a planet in the material world in regards to this debate. Does Maharaj have any further thought on this? I've struggled to see how this reconciles issues. Thank you so much for this great discussion. I haven't ever read that before. Yeah, I haven't either read that even. But I, I would like to, yeah, personally, I would like to really be more informed in detail about what Shilagora Govinda Maharaj said in which context to to address the question properly, you know, because I wouldn't like just to sure. speak without knowing the details. So if possible, I, I may contact Tilak Grogger personally and, right. and get the, the background. But of course, if we are to take by Kuntha as a material planet, of course, we can speak in terms of falling. <laughs> but right. of course, the main point remains the same, that if we take by Kuntha as a transcendental realm, there's no fall from there. Okay, uh, maybe we could have a conversation about Maya. It is so much related to the subject. There's a story mm -hmm. about Narada asking Krishna if he can experience Krishna's Maya. Interesting question. 
Hmm. Yeah, that's a whole. <laughs> that's a whole, say, whole different podcast. episode. Oh, yeah. yeah, dedicated to Maya Shakti, but it, it, it deserves so for sure. Maya Shakti is really a very important. Um, how to say? Reality for us to understand that Bhagavatam himself would say, Mayam Bhurnaya Tunusya Isvarashanumodata Shambhata Shadayanitam Mayatmanamuhiti. That, but by properly discussing about Maya Shakti, by properly understanding the controller of Maya Shakti, of course, as well, and understanding Maya as the Shakti of Bhagavan, by permanently speaking about, about Maya Kata, <laughs> we will, will transcend Maya, the Bhagavatam says. So, how to transcend Maya? by describing Maya in connection to its source. So, so of course, that, that Maya is a very mm, interesting reality, interesting concept that also sometimes I've seen, sometimes devotees kind of project some Christian sensibilities in the direction of Maya being a bad-intentioned personality that wants us to fall and suffer and it's against Krishna, but actually it's- A devil or something. Yeah, yeah, but it's actually Shakti of Bhagavan that is in his service, the Bhagavatam describes her as being ashamed of having to perform that particular uh, function, but someone has to do it. Because again, there is, can I mention some point in connection to this? Because someone may ask, well, but if Maya is there, why Krishna made all that like this? If there's no beginning, some, for some people this sounds cruel. Like we have been thrown here forever without choice or, or and, and this kind of creates some may affect our faith as well. Someone right. asks why Krishna did it like that. There is a whole department in philosophy called theodicy, actually, that deals with this question that if God is good, why there is bad? Of course, we in our tradition do not speak too much about bad or evil or, or demon, but Maya Shakti, Abhidya, Anadya Abhidya. Yeah. And uh, for example, if a person doesn't know Sanskrit, his ignorance of Sanskrit is without a beginning, basically. So that's the same idea here. And why we are in Anadya Vidya, in one sense, there is no why, because there's no beginning. <laughs> there has no beginning to us and to the world. Hmm? So, yeah. I mean, try to understand, let's try to understand this point, if you give me one minute. It's because sometimes we, again, carry this Christian sensibility of creatio ex nihilo, which means creation out of nothing. But in Gaudiya Sampradaya, we are not thinking Krishna created something out of nothing, but everything exists without a beginning. Krishna exists eternally, and his shaktis exist eternally. Maya shakti exists eternally, Sarup shakti exists eternally, and us, Jiva shakti exists eternally. Mm. So, and, and, and I know this has a lot to do with, so who is to blame then? Because generally we want someone to blame. <laughs> But how God is not to blame for the suffering of the Jews because karma is an adi. God did not create the world with evil in it. Try to understand this. I mean, the world always existed with, with Krishna, along with God, with his energies. The interaction with his shaktis existed. Karma is an adi because Krishna is an adi. This Shristi Lila, this world is an adi. This Lila involves karma, the principle of justice. And Krishna defers to justice in general in this world as Paramatma, because if right. not, he will be unjust, but also at the same time, he's merciful, which is a transgression of justice in the context of bestowing bhakti. So without the principle of karma, there will be no mercy because mercy is a transgression of karma. And if Bhagavan has no mercy, he will not be worthy of the highest regard. So God, the, the conclusion is God is not to be judged by what he makes. Why he made the world, he didn't make the world. 
why he made us, he didn't make us. So he's not, he did not make anything. So he's not to be judged by what he makes, but rather by how he behaves in relation to what already is there. So mm. there's another way of thinking about things. Wow, <laughs> so very interesting. Do you follow my point? I do, yeah. So Krishna is not creating anything. Everything exists eternally along with him. So we are to consider him about how he behaves with all the things that already are there. Yeah, so, okay. I see so, what you're saying. So karma is an adi, therefore it was never imposed on us at any point on time. So in this way, we cannot say that God basically caused us to be in a suffering condition because we have been there without a beginning, but we can choose something else at any moment. Right. And at the, at, the, at, the other, at the same time, again, we have not made a choice that caused us to fall from grace. And until we come in contact with the sadhu, as explained in the other podcast, there is no way for us to embrace the path of bhakti, which is not inherent. <laughs> the, poor, the, the, the point is the conditioned soul is not to blame for the suffering, and God is not to blame in this, in, for the suffering in the world. So the, the whole concept of blame basically is simply null and void. It is simply what it is. Sometimes we want to blame someone. It's interesting how this operates in our subconscious regarding blame. Some jivas maybe are serving Krishna from time without beginning, just show the Nanda. We don't say anything. But if someone says there are jivas who are not serving Krishna from time without beginning, then the question comes, why? Because mm -hmm. many times we want to blame someone to obtain some mental satisfaction. <laughs> yeah. But, but a real solution will be look at solution to suffering, basically. No? So the false finding of bl blaming propensity, with this I'm finishing, and we continue with the question, is basically an expression of, of, of illusory life, basically. But as we grow spiritually, proportionately our inclination to find fault will disintegrate, I will say, and will be replaced by a growing sense of compassion and if there's no one to blame, no fault, everything is perfect, and there's always room for improvement, basically. As Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta said, the only lacking is the lack of Krishna consciousness. So that can always increase, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I, I see a, um, a trend, not trend, a theme here in some of the questions that says, uh, what about when Prabhupada said that we were all Brahma? So here's a question. How do we understand the declaration of Srila Sridhar Maharaj when he said the first body of the Jiva is the body of Brahma? I haven't read that, but I... yeah, sometimes that's been stated. Of course, <clears throat> this is not to mean that we begin in, again because there's no beginning. <laughs> it's not that we fall and first we are someone and then we become someone else and someone else. But what is mentioned in the Bhagavatam is that after, or, or I will say, before one official creative cycle, Brahma, there's one form of Brahma called Iranya Garba which comes somehow about and this, this represents that as a conglomerate of all the jivas. So all the jivas that will eventually uh, become aware of their individuality in the new creative cycle are represented in this original form of Brahma. It's in that sense that some of our acharya have said mm, the jivas originally first were Brahma, not because there was some falling from one place and some chronological degeneration of species or something but I, I, when every single creative cycle begins there's this particular form of brahma called iranya garba you can search i, I had to search for the exact quote in the bhagavad where all the jivas are conglomerate there before reobtaining if you will their sense of individuality when their karma activates again okay um yeah pretty technical topic 
Yes, yes, yes. Very technical. Uh, okay, here's a question. Uh, Rajanath, I think this is a quote from Jayavadharma. You said earlier that the chit world is eternal and so are the jivas. If this is true, how can an eternal entity possibly be ma created, manifested, or produced? If it is created at some point of time, it must have been non-existent before that. So how can we accept that it is eternal, Babaji? The time and space that you experience in this material world are completely different. Oh, I thought this was a question. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I read it as a question for some reason. Um, okay, here. Uh, if I'm not remembering back my sarup and I have to develop bhakti, it is not inherent, then how do I know what seed I got? When you, when I understand it and what it is indicated by, and you're, you're an acharya, your guru, sampradaya, or my tastes, but I have to get tastes in the first place. A few uh, questions there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'm trying to follow the question. Sorry. Yeah. How do you know what seed you got? Well, of course, in the very beginning, you may not have an idea of what seed you got because one, if, if this is our first lifetime of contact with Sadhu Sangha, we may not have any overt devotional specific affinity, but the seed is coming, as the verse saying, Guru Krishna Prasadipai Bhakti Lata Beach. And eventually, as Mahaprabhu gives this whole analogy of the vine, <clears throat> the seed is planted and it's watered and all these different ingredients start to... To, to, to evolve, if you will, and eventually the leaves come and eventually the flowers come and eventually the fruit comes. So the more this vine, to continue with the analogy, grows, the more you find yourself with some spiritual affinity, basically. In the beginning, our spiritual practice may be more generic. That's another big topic altogether, like when we, we may speak about becoming Christian conscious, but that's still a general idea, what specific form it takes as much as we develop. So we will find ourselves attracted in one direction or another. And of course, that's generally because of the bhakti scars we would receive by Sadhu Sangha in this lifetime or previous lifetimes, maybe. That can happen also. That can happen in this lifetime. You may receive a particular uh, devotional impression from your Gurudev, but maybe in your previous lifetime, you were already practicing and you receive another type of scars that were so strong that created some particular affinity in you in your previous lifetime. And in this lifetime, you received association with the sadhu with another affinity, but you have so, so deeply embedded some scar from previous lifetime that that association in this lifetime won't change that affinity you already developed, but will nourish that. It shouldn't be a con in conflict, basically. Mm -hmm. So that in time will evolve. The more our practice evolving naturally, as Vishwanath describes the stages in bhakti, naturally we'll be described having a more and more clear mm, sense of affinity in one direction or the other. Mm. Okay. Let's take another question. How do we understand the creation of jivas in the world through Sayambhuva Manu with the concept of anadi? Well, basically it's not so much creation of jivas per se, but it has more to do with the different manifestation of species of bodies, not so much the creation of the jiva. And the jiva is not created, the jiva is consciousness, spirit. So you don't create a soul, basically. So when the, the, the creation of the manos and all this type of progenitors and prajapatis are described, it has more to do with the, pop, how do you say, population of the, of the world, like, in, in, like manifesting different forms, Brahma himself asking 
these different songs, as we know how the Bhagavatam describes, to populate the world, and different species are there. So it has more to do with the different species rather than the, uh, how to say, than with the souls in itself. So of course, again, each one of those souls that will appear in each one of those species are not beginning in that particular lifetime. That particular jiva came from a previous cycle with certain karma, and according to that karma from the previous cycle, in this particular cycle, they will appear in whatever given species they, they, they have to be according to their karma, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is there certain personalities that would never fall from Vaikuntha, but then possibly other spirit souls or personalities who have the ability or propensity to enter into the material universe and is being in the material universe in an obscure sense, a type of service as well as we are acting out or a part of Mahavishnu's dreaming of the material worlds. Do you, I, <laughs> I don't know if you understand that, but I certainly don't. <laughs> I think so. Let's try. Uh, <coughs> certain jivas that never fall from Vaikuntha. Well, I will say it again that nobody falls from Vaikuntha. And if someone comes from Vaikuntha, it's not a fall. Like Jaya and Vijaya. They right. came to on earth, but it's not a fall, technically speaking. Strictly speaking, Krishna himself is manifesting his lila on earth at every single moment, our acharas are explaining. In, in one planet, earth, and in, in some universe, Krishna is always performing his Nara Lila. So strictly speaking, he's always in, in one form on earth, but it's not a falling state. And whenever Krishna is, all his associates are with him. So that's, of course, a, a complex thing to understand, because at the same time we hear Krishna is in the spiritual world with his associates eternally, but he's always executing his Lila on earth, always, at some part, eternally. But it's not that the spiritual world is empty and there is some sign saying, we went to planet Earth, we are coming back in a few decades or something. They are in different manifestations simultaneously. But again, they are not falling from there on Earth. They are coming to perform Lila. So that's a particular type of Lila. The Nitya Siddhas, along with Bhagavan, they engage in a particular Lila. And for us, as Bada Jivas, we are not eternal associates of Bhagavan. So we are part of the Shristi Lila. That's the term that has been used. Shristi means like creation. So yeah, it still is a Lila because it has to do with the Bhagavan and the interaction of Bhagavan with his Shaktis. And of course, the, the ultimate glory of the Shristi Lila is when the Jiva enters in touch with, with Bhakti and becomes aware of its ultimate prospect. So somehow or other, uh, being in the Shristi Lila uh, it's a type of service as much as we are aware that we are in the Shristi Lila, basically. <laughs> because that's glorious in itself. But as much as we are not aware where we are and what's the purpose of all this, it's, it's most a disservice to ourselves and our source, basically. Right. So I hope it helps. Dandavatsa Maharaj, what is the point to delve into such topics such as fall from or not from Vaikuntha? How will this help one in their sadhana? Good question. <laughs> yeah. Again, as we mentioned, it doesn't necessarily have to be a topic that every single practitioner has to hear at every single, at this precise moment. So again, many of you who are here in this podcast, 
may need to log off from this. <laughs> or it's my fault. I'll take I'll take the blame for that one because this is okay. the number one Hare Krishna podcast and this is what we're discussing. So that's why we're delving into it because I wanted to. But yeah, some people don't need to listen to this, right? Mm-hmm. So I will I will like to make that point first clear. I'm not just in a campaign. Everyone absolutely needs to hear that. And if you're Bhakta Joe coming newcomer from day one yesterday, you have to know the truth about where the soul is coming. I'm not saying that. Yeah. But in some level, I've seen many devotees having their faith disturbed by this idea of falling from Vaikuntha because this didn't make sense in many ways regarding, again, Krishna's nature, the nature of the spiritual world, the nature of bhakti and prem. How can you fall from that? And so many contradictions that at some point for some devotees may become something necessary to address and solve. So again, this type of words is mostly directed <clears throat> in that connection. Because again, we are speaking about, uh, we want to go to a place, all of us agree, we want. We have a common goal, Golok Vrindavan in our tradition mostly. And uh, But if we say we are coming from there, naturally that creates some, some complexity there. Because as we say before, I want to go to a place that they are telling me I have fallen from, so what guarantees me that I'm not going again and I, it won't fall again? Krishna won't be able to protect me. Is he able to protect me? How much he loves his devotees? <laughs> All Krishna's love and mercy becomes like question if you play out the implications uh, of this notion. So again, for some devotees, that's necessary to speak about. From some others, maybe may not, no problem. Okay, so I think Leela Vilasani is clarifying her question because we didn't answer it. I, I, she didn't think we understood it. There are different seeds you get. Who decides? Is it by chance? Uh, just one gets seed. Okay, bhakti. Another of impersonal inclination to end up in sayuji mukti. That was my question. I think you didn't understand. Oh, probably. Yeah, I didn't understand. So, bhakti moves independently. That's described in uh, Madhura Kadambini by Srila Vishwanath Thakur. Bhakti, it's has its own initiative, if you will. And of course, it's up to us to know what to do with that seed that is coming through our way, because Sadhu Sangha can count our life, but we can choose to offend the Sadhus or host the seed they are trying to give us or not, basically. No? So there are some different inclinations, but generally, again, Bhakti will come out of its own will, out of its own sweet will. Now, we, we have our own will. Sometimes we speak about in terms of free will. It's not that free as well, of course. <laughs> but we have some will, but also the sadhus have their own will. So it may not be in our will to become a Gaudiya Vaishnava. At least in my case, it was not my conscious decision before meeting the devotees, I will become a Gaudiya Vaishnava. But at one point, I found myself singing and jumping and dancing in the kirtan and saying, what I'm doing here? How I came here? <laughs> So yeah. it was not my official decision, but it was the will of the Vaishnavas exercising in relation to me. And that touched my heart, and, and here I am. <clears throat> and it is said in the scribe also, I can share with you, I don't remember the exact verse now, but in connection to impersonal liberation, of course, that's not bhakti in itself. So there is another type of samskar that, that, that receive mukti samskar in connection to jnani, jnanis. But bhakti is also an influence that is in the world, always operative. So some people may choose bhakti, some people may choose some other idea, but still we have our particular volition, if you will, will 
to exercise in connection with one or the other. It's not like an artificial imposition that you don't have any decision whatsoever. Mm -hmm. but some ideas, we can continue speaking for sure. Yeah, we're running out of time here, but I'm just going to pick some uh, questions. This is from my friend, so I'm going to take this. Hare Krishna Maharaj, my previous question was posted before you addressed it on your talk. This was about Back to Godhead. <clears throat> the next question is, can you explain a little bit more about Sarup Siddhi? How do you attain your original form when you are Anadi and Nityabada? Good question. Okay, so <clears throat> Sarup Siddhi, it's a term that is mostly used by Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur. He has termed Sarup Siddhi and also Bastu Siddhi. So generally the idea of Swarup Siddhi has to do with attaining the perfection of our Swarup, which in this case will be attaining the perfection of our spiritual identity. Uh, and generally this is connected with being born in the whatever Krishna Lila is being performed on planet Earth. There's one born birth, we have to go through that. Vishwanath Chakravartakura explains in his Raghavarma Chandrika. And after that first that birth, we are taking in the Krishna Lila on earth, whatever Krishna is, and we receive some scar from the eternal associate from day one, from the womb. After that birth, we enter into Golagrindavan, that's called Bastu City. So that's the first part, you no, know, regarding Swarup City. Swarup City, again, has to do with uh, being established in our eternal identity, and Bastu City represents the ultimate concrete perfection of that when we enter the Aprakat Lila Golagrindavan. So the question, last question is, how do you attain your original form when you are Anadi and Nityavada? So again, I don't, I'm not sure if the term original form in your case implies the notion that that form is already there in us. But if that's the case, you maybe not have not seen the first episode, <laughs> but if not, you may know that personally, I, I share the notion that according to Shastra, there is not original form included in the jiva, but that's something we have the potential to develop in the context of embracing bhakti. So our original form basically is inherent in the swarup shakti. It's not inherent in the tatasta shakti. In the swarup shakti, it's inherent our ultimate devotional identity that will descend out of its own accord when our heart is properly prepared and purified by engaging in sadhana. That's the very definition of sadhana bhakti. Kriti sadhya pavye sadhya bhavasa sadhana vida nitya siddhasya bhavasya prakritiyam hridi sadhita. When the, the, the senses are engaged in the context of bhakti and therefore the chitta is purified, the bhava, the, who is eternally perfect and established in the heart of the nitya siddhas, will descend and will create a particular current and influence that will take form of a, will take the form of a particular spiritual form. So again, we are anadi. We have we are conditioned without beginning. It doesn't mean we have a sorup inherent in us or something. We have the potential for embracing bhakti and developing a bhakti sarup when we locate ourselves under the influence of bhakti, as the Gita says, "Daivin prakriti So some ideas in that connection. Okay. <laughs> okay, um, the, the thread has many other questions. Uh, so Maharaj will actually, uh, you know, he takes his time out to address some of those questions uh, later on. So um, I think now, Maharaj, we can conclude. If you want to give some <laughs> words for our yeah. listeners. Yeah, again, going back to the main topic of today, again, it's, it's not an easy topic and, and one of the, how to say, one of the main problems of this type of ideas is that we try sometimes to understand eternal realities with our mind, which is 
non-eternal. So sometimes we understand something comparing it with something that we have experienced here, but our experiences are all material here, so are, are related to objects that have a beginning and an end. So it's difficult, a difficult task for the guru to explain some of these topics in, in, with the language, with the language of material experience, and, and with, in, in, with an audience that has only mostly had material experiences. So in this way, the, the, the teacher may be limited by language, and the student may be limited by his or her own experience also. And, and that's some, why sometimes we may find some other statements in this regard. And so since we are limited beings, at least for me, the conclusion, <laughs> and going back to some initial words that I mentioned today, in connection to these complex topics, I acknowledge they are complex. This is not about defeating the anti-party nor disturbing anyone's faith or, or becoming more complex than what we need. <laughs> But it's about sincerely knowing the truth if we feel the necessity. <clears throat> and sometimes that may be difficult. We have to be open that knowing the truth may not be that easier always. So in conclusion, <clears throat> again, it's not, this is not an exercise of how much one knows more than the other, but rather how, how willing we are to learn. So I personally pray to, to, to be blessed and, and with, with proper humility and while speaking about all these topics, you know, do not feel myself better than anyone. And, and if I say anything, hopefully it may be in the spirit of service of the of I mean the that's why I, thank you, Maharaj. I mean that's why I bring you on because I feel like you have that humility and the way your demeanor, mm -hmm. your behavior and the way you express these things. Even if a devotee doesn't agree with you, still mm -hmm. they can appreciate, okay. You know, this is Maharaj's. The way he's expressing it is very uh, is 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 palatable, and and that's why I like um, having you on. Thank you, Maharaj, for for joining me. As always, appreciate it. Hope we can do some more episodes because I enjoy talking with you very much. I enjoy hearing from you, um, and uh, for our listeners, uh, this is episode seventy four. I'm trying to get to hundred episodes by the end of the year. I'm not having an episode next weekend because I have to go uh, to a wedding, but um, I will allow this time that you can catch up because I know a lot of devotees have not seen all the episodes. So please catch up. Oh, another thing is I'm banned from YouTube because of my Prahlad Nandaswamy episode. They gave me a strike and they banned me for another five days. So that's why this is not live on YouTube. I know a lot of you have been watching on Facebook, but it's not on YouTube, but it will be on YouTube. This episode will also be immediately on YouTube on Maharaj's channel. Go check his channel out. Really nice. Swami Padmanabha on um, YouTube. Uh, there's his email there at the bottom if you want to get in contact with him. He's also on Instagram at Swami Padmanabha. So please check that out. Um, he has some great content, uh, great Krishna conscious stuff. Not just about this topic, but about direct Krishna conscious things like Ramar Gita and really wonderful topics that we we appreciate from him. So again, Maharaj, thank you so much for joining me. Please stay on. I'm going to turn off uh, the live. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a great rest of your evening. Hari Bol.